following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Strap in, movie fans. We're about to take you 30 years into the past to explore the biggest blockbuster hits of the 1990s. I'm Pete. And I'm Michael. And And this this is is Box Box Office Office 30. 30. The fierce one, as I call him, seems a very tough fellow. I hope I never have to fight him. From the little I know, he seems to be honest and very direct. I like the quiet one immensely. He's been patient and inquisitive. He seems eager to communicate. I would conclude that he is a man of some weight among his people. Hello, hello, and welcome to Box Office 30. We're here this week for our review of the epic Western Dances with Wolves. As usual, I'm joined by my good buddy and co-host, Michael. How are you doing, sir? Hey, how are you? And hopefully... This recording won't be as long as Dances with Wolves was. <laughs> All three hours and one minute of it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, a funny and interesting note that kind of came up in my rewatching this, and I'm curious if you ran into this at all, too. And I was, I was thinking about texting it to you, but then I was like, you know what? I'm going to save it and mention it here on the podcast. Um, I came to realize there's two versions of this uh, movie out in the wild. There's a longer um, version. There's a 236 minute version of it. I'm like, who would watch that? Guess which one I watched. <laughs> you watched that one? Oh, so, no. Yeah, so I, I didn't quite realize it when I went into it. Um, and I only sort of did once I was already like pot committed halfway through. And Angie came through and was like, you've still got another such and such couple of hours left in this. And I realized on my little counter there when I paused it that it said three hours and 56 minutes or something like that, that I had um, grabbed the extended director's cut of Dances with Wolves. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) So I've got a funny story about this thing, right? So I bought the, you know, like deluxe edition DVD way back in the day when it when it first came out like oh i got because like back then it was like an addiction you had to have the dvd and (laughs) i will admit to this day and i think i bought that in like 2002 2003 this was the first time i rewatched this film since i bought the dvd so i basically took (laughs) probably 25 dollars and set it on fire at that point it's basically what happened nice so the funny thing is, so I'm watching this on my laptop on an external USB DVD player because I don't know if I actually own a DVD player anymore. So I was like, <laughs> all right, I'll have to do it on my laptop. So the way it's done is like it had three, it had two or three discs. I think it was three discs, right? Disc one was, remember the old school style that has no labels printed on one side? Yep. It's just, yeah, it's, and you, it's the A and the B side. It just burned on both sides. So the top of the disc says part one. Great. I flip over the disc. It says special features. Yes. But then, 
But then the two bonus discs also said special features. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out where's part B or part two <laughs> or whatever. And I'm like swapping in and out discs constantly. I figured out, oh, so the flip side of the double burn disc is actually p- the part B of the movie plus some of the bonus features. There you go. Like, like how many features were made of this movie? It's unbelievable. So I figured it out and ultimately got through the movie in more or less three and a half days of watching it. Nice. At least they didn't jip you out of it. Um, I, I had a likewise thing like that years ago. Um, I was not one of the um, crazed teenage girls from my middle school who went out and saw Titanic like eight times mm-hmm. in the theater, but I did see it when I bought it on uh, two tape VHS from Caldors back in the I day. Had that too. Yeah. <laughs> and I brought that home and I was excited to finally watch this movie that like every girl I knew was like going bananas over. And um, I watched part one and I'm like, all right, this isn't bad. This is a good movie. And I put in tape number two and tape number two just plain didn't work. So <laughs> I had to bring it back, but it, it took me a few days to do that. So I was like waiting on bated breath to catch the second half of Titanic until I could uh, make a, a return at Caldors and get a new version of it. That is so funny. I actually won. We're going way off topic, but we're talking about Titanic and this dual, <laughs> dual tape set because I had it as well. I won it in a raffle. Nice. <laughs> Dollar. I, I, I need to know more now. What was this raffle? It was like one of those like Chinese auction things that they used to do like around like the holidays at like, you know, uh, banquet halls or whatever, something like that. And and we did one for like, I think it was like Little League or something like that, or like one, some of the sport thing that I was involved with at the time. And I put a dollar in a little jar because it was like, a set of movies right and you could choose whichever one you wanted like oh cool and it was a couple cool movies whatever a couple of box sets of things all vhs at the time put a dollar in the thing my name didn't get called for a while then all of a sudden it gets pulled and the only cassettes that were left were titanic (laughs) (laughs) there you go so by default, that's how I got it. I was like, oh, okay. Not the worst thing that could have been left over there, I guess. <laughs> but again, I never watched it on VHS. I saw it in the theater twice, but I never watched it on VHS. So, oh, well. Wah, wah. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, we'll probably get to Titanic in a, a few years down the road. We, we will, I'm sure. But so, you know, Kevin Costner is known for these big, epic, long, large-scale movies. This probably being like the first one of his big mega long movies. I mean, there's always, you know, Field of Dreams and my personal favorite is is Robin Hood, uh, you know, Bull Durham. But those weren't like these long movies like this. And of the Kevin Costner epics, I'll say. So there's this, there's The Postman, there's Waterworld, and there's a couple others, I think. This is my least favorite right out the gate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, okay fair enough like I, I it's it's not that it's a bad movie it's not bad or it's it's really really terrific movie it's just there's just parts that i could feel like if i were editing this movie i gotta cut this down to 230 no question no problem 
Yeah, I mean, this is a is an interesting movie, and of course, we'll get into it when we when we get going on our review here. But you know, I as promised, I did a bit of research into the background of this movie and and kind of where it came from and things like that. Um, and obviously, Kevin Costner um, directs and is the main actor in this movie. Um, but the movie is written by a man named Michael Blake. Mm-hmm. Um, and this Michael Blake is a friend of Kevin Costner's. Um, and kind of the arc of how this um, production ended up where it did is is really kind of fascinating because essentially he had this idea, uh, Michael Blake in his head for some time, um, and kind of approached Kevin and, and other folks around Hollywood about it. And a lot of people like weren't really interested in pursuing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so interestingly enough, when he was talking with Kevin about it, him and a, I think they said a few other common friends of theirs sort of suggested to him, why don't you take this and rather than do it out as a screenplay to start, actually write this as a novel, create a novel first, because mm-hmm. I guess at the time there was kind of a push for turning a lot of books right. into films. Adap- and so they said you might, I'm sorry, was that? To do ad- adaptations. It was a big push. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they were saying, you know, make a push to do this as a book first see how that goes because a lot of these things are being optioned then into films. It might be your better Avenue than actually just kind of trying to go at it in a more direct way. Mm-hmm. And funny enough, that's what ended up happening. He wrote it as a novel. Um, the novel did well. And then um, they were able to get this made, um, you know, as a, as a film. And obviously, like I said, again, Kevin, in my understanding was a friend of his, um, but even there were some shifts in that originally. Like I think originally he didn't want to direct; he wanted somebody else to direct it, and then I think they changed that kind of towards um, the production side of things. Hmm. But you know, and again, this is something so fascinating because probably at the time, if you were privy on this sort of thing, you know, you would have remembered it. But it was a little probably too early for me and you to be thinking about this. But um, what was interesting in in my little bit of research is they were calling this movie Kevin's Gate. And, you know, now in the um, 2020 era, we always attach gate to like Heaven's any gate. sort of scandal thing. Right. But uh, actually, this was named this after Heaven's Gate, the movie. No um, way. Yes. Really? Which yes. Which had um, also likewise um, kind of bloat and and um, trouble with production and things like that. And, and they were basically kind of running into that with this um, film, I think what, 10 years after that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of people, once it got rolling and was in production, thought it was going to be just an epic flop that they thought it was not going to work. Kevin had to add in, I think something like three or $4 million of his own money to, to finish it out that it like, you know, just wasn't um, hitting the rest of its financing and things like that. Um, And, you know, we'll get to this as we talk about it later, but even like the scene where they're, um, doing the hunt for the bison and things like that. Like that took like a month on its own to produce, you know what I mean? So there was like a lot, a lot, a lot of road bumps um, in getting this done. Um, but then it became a huge success, um, both critically and, and you know, at the box office and, and everything. So um, it really is quite a success story um, for what people were definitely deeming um previous to it coming out is what they anticipated as being just a complete failure. So it's pretty cool that it ended up doing as well as it did. The thing is funny about it is for the Scott, the, the the scale of the movie and like the amount of scenes and extras and just like, 
it's obviously you know shot out in the in the west whatever but like they produce it for relatively low cost for the amount of time and film and everything that they must have done to shoot. yeah i mean again like it, it's not um apples to apples but it's it's in a similar kind of vein um as far as production cost as home alone was. Yeah. And think about those two movies. You know what I mean? Like, and again, like we were talking that home alone had legs for, for the money it spent. But as you said, I mean, look at this, it's, it's huge. It's sweeping. It's, it's out in the plains, I think in the Dakotas area and, and um, other similar locations and things like that. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, they really got pretty far on, on what they had to work with again. So uh, I, I have to say like one of the things I'm taking away from um, rewatching and, and learning about some of these movies again, and, um, the perspective of this podcast, and I hope this is something that's interesting for the listeners too, is people got a lot done without With these very massive, massive budgets. Yeah, you know what I mean? Um, and it's not to say that there aren't movies these days that that accomplish those same sort of things, but, um, you it's know... Much, it's much much smaller percentage. I mean, like... Yeah. If you look at in in comparison, like, the first Deadpool movie got made for a very low amount of money, but that's one of like a hundred of the movies I can think of off the top of my head. You know, then you look at, you know, Tenant was what, 220 million? Well, that's, I guess, the thing. I, I think, you know, we've gotten very used to them, and it's probably very silly when we're doing um, this show is that we've gotten very used to this concept that like, oh, a movie costs hundreds of millions of dollars to make. Yeah, it's just how much it costs, you know? And then, you know, you go back and you see how some of these folks have done this, you know, and we were even talking about um, uh, a little earlier um, in the year, Greyhound was only like 30 million and look what they did with that. You know what I mean? So like, it's still very possible. And of course, you know, 20 million, 30 million, still a lot of money. (laughs) You know, So it's not to, uh, not to, you know, shy away from that concept, but um, you know, it's, it's pretty cool what um, some of these productions um, were doing in the nineties with less technology, less accessibility, much costlier um, filming, you know, because they're using film as compared to digital a lot of the time and things like that. So uh, you know, it's it's pretty cool to see what they were able to do. The, you know, we'll talk about this as we go further into it, but like one of the things I had to point point out was like I feel like because they're just in such an open middle of nowhere area, I feel like a lot of the film was shot, you know, natural light, just in camera, you know, color grading and, and whatever they could do. And it looks really, really beautiful. Like I kept saying to myself, and this is one of my points that I'm going to make if this was redone today with like 4k or 6k like (laughs) this thing would be breathtaking and it's just it it almost bummed me out a little bit because it is so beautiful but you know not necessarily because of film but like seeing it even on a dvd like and then watching it on a 4k monitor it's it just you see the deterioration it just doesn't look as crisp as it could look today. There's a part where he's like walking through the plains and he's touching all the the things that would be so beautiful. Now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. And again, I'm sure we'll touch on it m- several times as we get going here. But it, just a stunning movie. The cinematography is utterly gorgeous, and and definitely, as you say, I mean, I, I imagine at some point, and you know, obviously we're at the 30 year anniversary here, so I don't know if if or when. But I can see them doing, um, you know, like a 4K upscale, you know, take the originals if they have the originals and, and kind of upscale um, for something like that, probably again. Um, but yeah, I'd be interested to see that because it is 
beautifully shot. And in some ways, you know, I'm sure some of these locations still look um, very similar in, in some cases, because I know some of that area is still very untouched in the country. But yeah. it, 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 kind of one of the premises of this movie is the disappearing West. And I think, you know, we still have a lot of that naturally in this day and age. Um, but it would be really cool to see some of that just gorgeous Americana, you know, yeah. brought to life in 4K, 8K, you know, whatever we want to uh, upscale it to here for these days. Yeah. So um, before we get rolling into um, everything else, uh, it's probably worth mentioning that this one um, did quite well um, when the award season rolled around the next yeah. year. And again, this is one, another one of these ones that obviously is at the end of the year Year here squeaked in um, for the next Oscars, the 1991 uh, 63rd annual Oscars. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that? How do you know <laughs> So... So yeah, so this movie really cleaned house when it came to awards. Like it really won quite a few. So it was nominated for I don't even know how many, but it won like six or seven, right? Yes. So it won best adapted screenplay. So that play on making a book and then make it into a movie really paid off because that yes, right? Yes, Michael Blake uh, has his little gold trophy. <laughs> yeah. Um, best original score, and I really liked the score in this movie because it's you know you're not hearing any kind of like music person. It's just more like the way it moves. It almost <laughs> moves with the world. Like it kind of it's it's cool in that sense, and I really really liked that. Um, it is. Here's a little um, box office thirty secret. Michael doesn't actually listen to these things after we produce them. <laughs> so, uh, fun fact for you. If you go back and listen to the first uh, episode from earlier in the month, I actually like led in with just some of the John Dunbar theme um, for like probably 30, 40 <laughs> seconds. And actually, my wife was complaining about it when she listened back. She's like, that was on almost comically too long, like the uh, intro music in Spaceballs when the ship is coming in at the beginning. <laughs> but uh, it's just such gorgeous music. I had to let it play. <laughs> well, to explain... I can't stand the sound of my own voice. So to hear myself over again, it is torturous. So that's why I don't listen. I, I, if I could just like, you know, phantom edit myself out and just listen to people, I can do it. So speaking of that, this movie won for best film editing. Hey, look at that transition. There you guy. go. Hey, oh. um, again, best sound in, in conjunction with best score, which is pretty cool. And, and like, the sound is really good. And I listened to it on headphones on my laptop. So I really had it like listen close, just like the sound of the Buffalo running and just the, the gunshots, the way that they timed the gunshots they found, they sounded clean and, and crisp. And it was really, really good. Cinematography, uh, one for best cinematography, which was clear. Like, I don't know how, who could have compared to the way this film was shot at the time. It was beautiful. Then, you know, it took, you know, the, the Mac Daddy of them all. It won Best Director and Best Picture. So it really cleaned up in that sense. Like, it, it was a, a big deal. And it, 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 I read something on there. Kevin Costner made his money back in this film so quick because <laughs> of all the awards and all the accolades and everything else. Like, he made his money right back. And he definitely did. Yeah, so he had to put a few million in, but uh, he's probably made a few million back out. And something interesting to know about that that I uh, came across in my reading is that both him um, and also uh, the lead actress, Mary McDonnell, 
um, have in um, years since actually um, donated a lot of the um, funds that they get in royalties and things like that from this film um, to uh, charities that um, help, um, you know, folks like in the Lakota um, uh, nation and different um, groups like that, that are, uh, you know, like the education funds and things like that. So kind of a fun, cool fact that I'm, you know, uh, I actually, and I'm not gonna dive too much into it, but I saw there was kind of like an interesting history with Kevin Costner with, with this film and, um, uh, real life, um, native Americans and sort of, um, where it's gone to. Um, and, uh, you know, I think you had, um, mentioned, uh, in your notes and I'm going to steal it from you just cause it's, it, it backs up what I'm talking about here that he was made an honorary member of the, the Sioux nation after the film's release. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen some, some notes like that. He did get himself in trouble. Um, for a little while, and I'm going to forget exactly <laughs> the details of it, but he was trying to build something um, that I think was going to be an issue with tribal land, and it ended up that he ended up not doing it. Um, but it, he kind of earned himself a little bit of grief for a while there with that. That, that was kind of contrary to, to what you might think. But then uh, I think in part because of that and in part um, just you know from this uh, film success and things, um, that he did um, start really uh, like a nice organization that, that helps with um, charity work. So pretty cool um, way to give back a little bit off of that. Yeah, no, it was pretty cool. I, I read that. I was like, oh, that's kind of nice. And and um, I wonder if he was trying to build Waterworld. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, I, I read it. And unfortunately, it's floated a little back out of my head. And I could probably look it up again. I, I, the dumb part is I have in my head that I feel like it has something to do with either a railroad or I don't know, something weird, something in like the Nevadas, I think. I don't know. Hmm. I could be way off. <laughs> you know, I, I my head is so saturated with with Kevin Costner and, and wolves and <laughs> as things are starting to leak out the sides here now. <laughs> That's a personal problem, my friend. <laughs> it is. It is. So I did a little bit of post watcher research on this movie. And I found out that there was actually a John Dunbar in real life, but they're they're saying that this particular John Dunbar doesn't explicitly connect to the original John Dunbar, other than the fact that he was a pro-Native American missionary uh, allied with the Pawnee in the early 1800s. But they don't say what kind of like where that name came from unless it's something you know they just it was a good name and it was kind of a good connection also uh mary mcdonald's character who's uh stands with a fist is based on a woman by the name of cynthia ann parker who was kidnapped and adopted by the comanches uh when she was 10 years old in 1836 now, this is the thing that made a little bit of a mistake, and I think IMDb screwed this up. It said that she lived till 1960. So, by my math, she was born in 1826 <laughs> and lived about 135 years. Wow. <laughs> I don't think that's right. I think that's wrong. But that's IMDb. I mean, who knows? Problem. Maybe she had a real good life and just was... Uh... <laughs> Stretching things out. <laughs> I, guess so. I don't know. I wonder if it's either yes. 1906 or I don't know. But it's, it's, I, it's probably 1860 instead of 1960. I, I bet that's, that's probably think. the typo. That's probably, <laughs> I, I think, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I also, uh, like I said, I did try and dig into the history of this, and I'll have some points as we get going through on um, things that they did that were realistic and fitting with history and things that are not quite correct to mm-hmm. um, to the reality of things. Um, but but an interesting note was on on this particular character. As you said, John Dunbar, that seemed to be a, a name pulled out of a hat. Like, it, it, it uh, does match up with that missionary, um, but no connection to this group. Um, but um, she did come up um, in sort of some of the stuff that I was um, watching and reading about this um, as, as an interesting kind of pull, because as you say, her story is very true and realistic in a way to um, sort of how stands with fist, uh, you know, ended up where she is and is portrayed uh, in this film. So I just thought that was, that was fascinating. So it seems like, um, you know, in doing his research for writing the book and things like that, that he found at least some of these names and some of these ideas and then borrowed them yeah. um, to put them in. But, uh, you know, and again, like I said, we'll talk about this more as we go. You know, one of my concerns um, when we started talking about um, doing this um, film was how realistic a portrayal was this. And I know that a lot of people, um, you know, as far as movie watchers go and people that came out of the 90s watching this, you know, uh, found this film to be um, a very different take on Native Americans and Native American culture than what had been around previously, which is usually just like, you know, the stereotypical Western where John Wayne, you know, cowboys exactly. John Wayne's the good guy. And the, you know, the, those darn Indians are the bad guys, you know, and that's just kind of how it is very um, black and white. Um, but, you know, this is a, a movie that as it turns out, cause I, I thought maybe there's some more before. So, but not really, um, one of the first movies that really tried to make a very true depiction of how life would have been for Native Americans at this point in time. And the research basically shows that it's actually pretty darn correct. Yeah. Um, there's there's kind of minor discrepancies here and there. Um, and like I said, I'll mention some of those as we get going. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they did pay really good tribute um, to it. And I don't find a lot of people in truth really complaining um, very much about um, the depictions and, and how things are shown here. Um, so I just thought that was uh, interesting. So it, it definitely also makes it a little bit more, um, I think, approachable and watchable, <laughs> you know, when, when we're living with quite a lot of cancel culture and things these days, for better or worse. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's interesting because I think it just then goes to shed a really interesting light on how people were living at the time and, and things like that. Yeah, and and on top of that, like you know, there's a lot of concern about is this a white savior movie? And for the most part, I didn't get that vibe. It more felt like a man looking for for meaning in life, and he found it with these people, and he kind of became a part of their culture as opposed to him, you know, being the hero. He does some things that are, you know, the the hero role, but he more or less kind of tried to learn about them more. And it's, what you know, one of the things that I found was like that, you know, critics complained that Dunbar felt like a white savior coming to aid his Sioux friends. Um, audiences were absorbed by the details of their existence. Um a coach was brought in to teach cast members how to speak like their unfamiliar language that they may not have known. 
and also learn the Lakota language. I thought they really tried to lean into being honest about it. You know, it's not like, you know, you you watch a, a let's, I'm going to use like a, you know, a James Bond movie, let's say, and all the bad guys all speak English, but with an English <laughs> accent, but they're yes. German or whatever. <laughs> like, you know, they, I, it's actually kind of funny because I started watching the movie digitally. I had, I had downloaded, I had made a copy of it off my DVD and it had no subtitles. And I'm like, Oh, I got to, <laughs> that's why I had to track down the DVD. To watch again, the yeah. <laughs> Oops, oh, well, so I don't know. What did you think about that particular aspect of the movie? Well, so it is interesting. And again, this was something I was going to mention when we got to it, but it's worth mentioning now um, that they found a woman um, whose name was Doris Leader Charge. And she was a community college um, professor, teacher. Um, and she is one of very few people that they were able to find around this time that was able to speak um, in any sort of accurate terms, Lakota Sioux. Um, it's, it's unfortunately, as many of these tribes have, you know, become integrated and, and, you know, a lot of customs and traditions are lost. Um, so have much of the language. Um, so they struggled in finding somebody that could speak the genuine language. And it was a very important thing for them. They, as you said, they didn't want to kind of do something where, uh, the native American actors were speaking English or, or things like that. You know, they really wanted to kind of stay true, um, to the roots of, of these people. Um, so, uh, they brought her in and she basically, um, worked, uh, with them to translate the entire, uh, screenplay and then act actually often as an on-site sort of coach to help them through and teach them, um, the lines and things like that. You know, many of even the, the native American actors in this, um, and I, I can't even say, um, completely native American cause actually some of them are uh, Canadian, uh, from Canadian tribes. Um, uh, you know, came and with her learned a lot of the language. Um, one of the things I thought was, uh, funny, but fascinating is that the, uh, Lakota Sioux language is gendered, um, meaning to say that there's a, um, female version of the language and there's a male version of the language. And the language that she was obviously a little bit more familiar with, um, was the female, um, mm -hmm. version of it. So even the men in this movie are often speaking, uh, in what would be female Lakota Sioux language. Um, really? So uh, a, a kind of funny or ironic um, thing about it is that some actual, um, you know, I was going to say today, but 1990s uh, actual Lakota Sioux people were kind of um, cracking up about it in the film because as they were hearing it, they're like, oh, these men are speaking as the women would speak, you know, and things like that. Um, so it's just kind of a funny um, sort of right. thing on that. So but I, I got to give them, you know, a real A for effort in in making that distinction, not going the route of, you know, they say one or two lines and then all of a sudden the rest of the whole movie is all of a sudden in, in English. You know, like we were talking uh, several times uh, recently about um, Hunt for Red October. And I always liked how Hunt for Red October handled that because obviously um, uh, <laughs> Sean Connery's character is um, speaking Russian throughout especially him and all his men are speaking Russian, but obviously they end up speaking English. So it, essentially the way they sort of handle that is when you're just with them, they're speaking English. But then when they meet Jack Ryan and crew sort of, I think for the first time, or I might be a little off on when the exact is, they sort of are like speaking in Russian with subtitles. And then 
he kind of like ducks his head down and back up or something like that. And then the next thing you know, it's like all in English. And it was like, it was like kind of a cool way to transition that, but it's not in Russian anymore, you know, for better or worse. I'm like, I don't think I would have minded if they were speaking Russian the whole time with subtitles, but you know, they opted to do the whole English route. And I'm really happy that they didn't do that in this and that the characters have this sort of thing where they have to try and figure out um, this kind of common ground. And obviously stands with a fist becomes this character to help, you know, link the two as she has to start remembering, um, you know, the English that she learned from when she was younger. And I have some issues with some of the English she remembers versus some of the English she doesn't, because she seems to forget common words, but remember some sort of weirder really? out there words at times. Um, yeah. So it's a little wonky, but again, that's a very minor gripe um, compared with how they treated this. So that's kind of, I think where I stand on it. That was a long winded way to say, <laughs> say that, but yes, I, I do appreciate um, that they, you know, put as much effort and I mean, half the movie subtitled, you know, half the movies in another language, uh, maybe even more than half the movie, you know? So I, I think that's a brave and bold step um, for what we would have been used to and, and would normally be seeing in a movie going experience at that time or even today. Mm -hmm. Good point. Good point. Interesting. So uh, why don't we hit the trail here? Because, uh, you know, I, I think it's really, we, we uh, you know, we're in a little bit of a different format here, but I think it's cool that we were able to kind of, dish on some of this uh, interesting info for this, but let's, let's, let's go in. Michael um, painstakingly took notes uh, during the length of this one. So, so let's hear what, uh, what you got for us this week or this so, month. <laughs> okay. So the movie starts off during a civil war battle and Kevin Costner's character, John Dunbar, we find out is a Lieutenant and he's got a really badly damaged or scarred leg that, he can barely barely walk and he, you know, they're, they're afraid that they're going to have to cut off his leg and he's, you know, he's really worried about it. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to lose his leg. And, but he feels like he's going to die at this moment at this like barrack. Cause they're kind of in a stand standoff between the union army and the Confederate army. And he's on the union side and he looks up and he sees a horse and he gets on the horse, and he's just riding into the middle of the prairie, basically to sacrifice himself or or to give like a you know allow the Confederates to shoot and kill him and commit suicide because he thinks he's going to die anyway from this. Yeah, it's like the um, Civil War era death by cop. <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah, he's he's just kind of like he doesn't want them to take his legs. So I guess he's he's kind of suicidal. Um, and I have to say, uh, just to put a pin in that, I thought, and we'll talk about this more as we go here. I thought it was a really interesting thing that sort of is in the first part of this movie that I don't then feel like is a lot in the later portions of this movie where suicide really kind of plays a role several times in the story. In the first um, half an hour for sure. It's like, yeah. And it, you know, it just, it was an interesting thing for me because I, I think you have to keep going back to the fact that you know this was all coming from this idea and this novel and everything that was written um but yeah lots of really um very direct allusions to um suicide early on in this film three three that i can think of off the top of my head at least yes so yeah they, they it, it starts off in 1863 in, in a in a battle at saint davis saint david's field do you know i mean you're you're much of a history buff as I am, but you've seen, 
Do you know anything about, there's anything significant about St. David's Field in the Civil War? I can't say I know anything about this one, although now you got me thinking and maybe after this podcast I'll have to go and look it up. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I'm not really sure and I'm not really sure specifically where that is. I'm, I'm getting the impression it's a little further out west than yeah. our neck of the woods. You know, like uh, the funny thing is now that I've moved here to Princeton, we went over to like the uh, Princeton battlefield from the Revolutionary War and that was kind of fascinating to... Uh, to see. So I don't know, maybe I'll have to look up uh, St. David's here because, uh, you know, it does seem like they pay particular attention to kind of quasi real life things. So I'm curious if this is significant or if it's um, just kind of a random pull. Mm. So, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, he becomes like the de facto hero of this battle because the Confederates start trying to shoot and kill him and they can't hit the broadside of a barn, let alone a horse and a man riding back and forth. So the Union Army attacks and they defeat the Confederates and win this battle. And I guess the general comes over to him and like congratulates him for helping them win this battle. And all he says is, please, I don't want to lose my leg. And so the general says, okay, take this man, get him to see my doctor. We're going to save your leg, yada, yada, yada. Great, cool. <laughs> and, and and he gets his choice of where he wants to be stationed after that. And this is where the monologues of the movie begin, where he's basically journaling his life and he's telling us literally word for word what he's writing in the book. Now, this is one of the few problems that I had with this movie is you see this wound on his leg. It is grotesque like no way in 1863 would this man have come so perfectly better from this wound no matter what kind of medicine or doctor they had and they never make mention of this injury again in the whole movie (laughs) no it's true you know there's there's definitely a few things that i think you have to take with a grain of salt like throughout this whole sort of thing because they're just kind of pushing the story along, but it is interesting because essentially it's pretty gruesome. The first time we come across him that it's very, very bloody leg. He's in quite a lot of pain. You know, I, you know, the doctors uh, in the civil war, notorious um, sawbones doctors, you know, where if it, if it looks not quite the right way, they're hacking it off. You know what I mean? Because essentially they don't have the supplies and the ability to, to really do much more for people. They really have to kind of, move one at a time very quickly with very limited resources. Um, and, you know, I think it for very often is just like, just, you know, lop off the limb and call it a day. So, yeah. you know, the fact that he does sort of make it out through this series of quasi miraculous events um, is funny. I mean, one interesting thing I think um, about all the people shooting at him on the horse and not being able to hit him is um, the rifles and things at that point in time, notoriously, um, not great at shooting straight, you know? So, uh, you know, a lot of these people also are like farmers, things like that. They might not be the most well-trained. They might not really be able to hit the broadside of a barn. So I think it is interesting that they essentially have that one guy that's like their sharpshooter that's about to take him down when all of a sudden the union side is like, what are we doing? Let's go, you know, and then basically plugs that guy and then proceed to kind of uh, overrun the rest of them. So, you know, it is an interesting opening, interesting scene. But as you say, it does get glossed over. He kind of doesn't spend the rest of his life with a limp or any mm-hmm. such thing. So whatever 
was going on with his leg, either A, wasn't as bad as we thought it was given how it looked, or B, uh, that particular general had a, a um, miracle worker doctor that <laughs> had all the right meds and things like that. Because yes, he he seems to not have any troubles with that um, from there on out. But obviously this is all an elaborate um, intro to our, our heroic character and sort of sets him on his uh, initial journey. Yeah. So he requests to go out to a station called Fort Cedric, but he has to start at Fort Hayes. And he says one of the most interesting lines in the movie. He says, I've always wanted to see the frontier before it's gone. And I feel like that's not just a John Dunbar line. I think that's something that like Kevin Costner himself felt because he's such a naturey kind of guy and like, likes that kind of world and the old west and stuff like that i feel like he was like this like almost as if he may have even written the line or written it the way he wanted to say it kind of thing yeah i mean again in my little bit of research um this line did actually come up and an interesting kind of insight into it you know especially at this period of time is essentially um the entire east coast at this point is completely sewed in yeah like everybody is is you know living there and, and making you know a lot of big cities and different things like that conversely way out on the west coast in california um things are already starting to get pretty built up mm-hmm. so you have this middle section of the country that's still at this point largely untouched uh, still very much prairie still you know frontier um, you know, and, and we start thinking about, um, the concept of Westerns and like the Western towns and the gold rush, it was still a little bit, you know, in the middle of that zone. It wasn't where large swaths of that space were being built up. You know, there just wasn't a lot of, you know, our civilization out in that space. It was still quite a lot of, um, native American, um, territory, territory. And, and bands and spaces. Um, so it, it isn't. It, it is simultaneously like an interesting modern way to think about it, but it also is actually fairly true to the time that like the frontier was reaching its, the end of its heyday that, you know, he and other people knew that people were expansionary moving out into that area. Um, and it, it, you know, it foretells kind of how the movie is going to end, which is, you know, that things do start become becoming very encroached upon and that, you know, eventually uh, all these just wide open areas do start getting built up and, and taken over and, and things like that. So um, put a pin in that, put a pin in that statement. Yeah. There's something that I want to talk about toward the end of this movie that I noticed. All right. Um, so he, he chooses to go to this Fort Cedric space and he has to meet with this really weird major. And <laughs> the, the first thing the major says is, I I pissed my pants and there's nothing anybody can do about it with that. <laughs> like so he, he it's very strange. He he like has this kind of creepy conversation with this somewhat unstable major. Somewhat? <laughs> okay. Very unstable major who then ha- like once John Dunbar leaves and sends him on his assignment and like does this weird kind of like salute to him it was very strange then he he goes out and he tells one of the corporals there like you know i am the king or something like that or some sort of weird line it was it was very confusing but then he stands by the window 
puts a gun to his head and blows his brains out and kills himself. But I don't know why. Like, I don't understand what this Yeah. Is. So I can't say that the extended version of the movie does even a lot more for this, unfortunately. Um, and when I was rewatching it, I, I kind of had the same instant reaction that you did. And then I was like, you know what? Me being me, I need to rewatch this and see if I miss something. So I, you know, rewound and, and rewatched it again. I said, no, I'm definitely still missing something. So then I had to take the next step, which was to start Googling. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think probably without the Googling, you can infer that obviously something's a little off with this guy. Um, I think this is one of the spots where the movie didn't do a great job in really setting up or explaining this character. And, you know, there's a reason for this character, and I'll 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 talk about that before I talk about the the whys of this character. The reason for this character is twofold. One, he needs him to send him on his way to the place where he ultimately ends up. But two, he needs to die. Right. Because there can't be anybody that knows where he's gone for the right. for the story to work as it does. Well, here's so, the thing. Yeah, that's the whole thing. So the only person that would know where where John Dunbar is going is Robert Pastorelli, one of my favorite actors of all time, he's like the, you know the 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 drunken you know cattle driver, and he's like, oh, I'll tell everybody that I'll you know it's we're I'm getting ahead of myself, but yeah, like it, it had to be that way that this major had to die because no one else is in the room, no one else knows where John Dunbar is going or who he is, and they yeah. just he just goes on his way. So. In looking around, at least one of the things I came across that sort of people were thinking is probably the case here, which apparently would have been a, a common ailment at the time, is that the major might be suffering from something like syphilis, which has essentially rotted his brain and, and made him a little nutty. Mm -hmm. um, again, I don't know that the movie clearly establishes that. What you have to do is go a step even further back to the novel. And so I found a section of this that, that the people were sort of discussing online, which is that the novel does a bit more to talk about this character. And essentially, they say that this character is like a lifer. Um, he's been passed over for a ton of promotions. He hates his life. He's just sick of things. And it just so happens on this day where Dunbar, John Dunbar comes through that he's kind of done. And so he's like at his wits end. He's kind of manic. Mm. He's he's kind of plotting he's going to kill himself and it just so happens that John Dunbar whisks through his office in like the 10 minutes or so before um this happens. I even given that explanation it's it's a little little bit of thin ice I feel like I think it's really just for the sake of getting this guy out into the wilderness with nobody knowing where he is to allow that plot device to happen yeah. as it does for so long where you have this lone man manning this fort all by himself out um in Native American territory with nobody knowing where he is. And when people do finally show up, not being able to register that he should have been there, things like that. It's it's a little bit weak, but I've seen other movies with weaker plot points than this. So it's forgivable so to piggyback on that at the what you assume is the exact same time. The battalion that is stationed at Fort Cedric, they their commanding officer tells them to leave. Don't forget the army. You're out of here. And they all abandon ship. 
but it's oh, not ship, but like they leave the base. They just get <laughs> up. They just start walking away somewhere into the the wild blue yonder, if you will. And it's this is another one of those things that's a little bit confusing about this movie is time. Like the way that time passes in this film, it could be five years, it could be five months. Hard to tell. Um, but so this the the base gets abandoned, and at the same time. Kevin Costner's on his way there and it just felt like it was too convenient like they should have had you know some sort of passage of time or a step like to say where we were on the base in conjunction with Kevin Costner getting there which takes about I guess four or five days I feel like to get there it felt like yeah one interesting thing I would say to that is that I I think you know, not that they run into each other, but I think that they're like two ships kind of passing um, in the night because um, when he does finally arrive, um, and I don't want to get too ahead of your notes on you, but when they when he does finally arrive, um, obviously nobody's there, but he can tell that it's been fairly recently abandoned. And one of the ways that he can tell that, and this is one of the things that I is one of my issues with this film, is uh, one of the ways that sort of, the white people, the army, the hunters are depicted in this is by their kind of blatant disregard for animal life. Yeah. And, you know, there's a level of this that certainly, especially juxtaposed against Native American um, concern for animal life and and use for animal life is completely legit and fair. Um, But there's several times in, in this case, essentially they leave a, bunch of just dead animal life in the watering hole and you know there's a reason for this you know i've heard of people doing this you know it's a military thing where basically it makes the water unusable by others because it's now created this kind of nasty septic um Mm -hmm. bacteria ridden sort of thing so people wouldn't be able to use that watering hole and things like that so i've heard of this happening what was for me, interesting in establishing this is that all the carcasses that then he spends a lot of time pulling out of his little water hole and everything look like they were put there like 12 hours before, mm-hmm. you know, like there's kind of no breakdown and things like that, you know, and maybe that would have been too gruesome or too much to show in a film like this. But I thought it was an interesting thing as I was watching it um, that it either establishes they were like had just done this. Or it's just like a weird thing you need to overlook that there'd be like these like non, you know, rotted deer and things like that. Because, you know, he shows up at the watering hole and he has this moment where like this, like it's just this dead deer face looking back at him from the water. And all of a sudden he realizes, oh, damn, I can't be drinking this water, you know, and then he spends like the next day or two pulling all that out and, and making a bonfire and all that sort of thing. So I just thought that was interesting because even though they don't go into a lot of the whys of of that group that are clearly like depressed and and manic themselves leaving and taking off to wherever you know essentially you know disbanding and abandoning their post which would get them all court-martialed and everything um you know i i think they're trying to establish that there's a lot of despair and loneliness out in this spot so it's interesting that now he's going to show up there by himself yeah so as i was saying so the the, the, like the trailer driver or, or cattle driver is this is Robert Pastorelli, who many of you guys would know is Eldon from Murphy Brown. He also plays the the villain in a movie called Striking Distance with Bruce Willis. He's 
was a great actor. You'd see him all the time in the 90s and, and 80s and so on and so forth. Tragically, he died of a, a heroin overdose in, in like the mid-2000s or so, or early 2000s. But he was a great, great actor. And, you know, having him in this movie, he's so good. Every scene that he's in, he steals it because he's just he's just like this dirty, gross kind of <laughs> strange guy. But he also kind of has this realism and honesty to him that is kind of fun when he's acting off the very serious soldier John Dunbar at the same time. And uh, yeah, and I think, you know, his death also, it, it, again, is a thing that sort of serves two purposes. Another um, person that knew he was where he was and was going to report back silenced. But it also establishes the Pawnee in this film um, yes. and the Pawnee become one of the um, major um, antagonists throughout to the Lakota Sioux. Um, now, what's interesting about that, and again, I could probably save this, but I'll mention it now while I'm. Um, thinking about it um again in my research uh one of the few things where they really went a wrong direction as far as their um trying to get things really right to the time in the era um the pawnee and the lakota sioux are technically in this movie flipped in the positions that they would have been in real life which is to say that in this movie the pawnee are shown as aggressors they're often attacking the more peaceful lakota um, we see them at a different point in this movie attack um, stands with fists um, family. And that's what ends up with her kind of being, you know, lost on the prairie and things like that. Um, in reality, the Pawnee were actually one of the tribes that were quite often more attacked by the Lakota and other tribes to the point that at this point in time, they were practically like on the brink of extinction as a tribe. Um, their territory had shrunk incredibly small. Um, and they would not have been in this position where they would have probably just been chasing down and um, See, that's killing people like this. <laughs> I, I thought from my like history knowledge, the Pawnee were a less, you know, aggressive tribe than as they're portrayed in this movie. They're, they're, they're portrayed as just savages in this movie in a lot of cases. Yeah. And it's interesting because again, you know, there's definitely tribes that were more aggressive and more um, uh, with the mind of going after each other. And, and, you know, one of the things that they do kind of at least say at some point later on with the Pawnee is, and they don't make a, you know, I think it's one of the failings of the movie. They kind of just show them like attacking them. They don't really go into the wise and I think at one point there's kind of like a passing line um, when he's journaling that sort of says, um, you know, I'm not used to this idea of war. I'm used to the idea of war for um, territory and profit and things like this, but that theirs is literally just because like they want to like steal resources and, you know, basically whatever they need to survive for the winter. And they're, that's pretty much a lot of the reason that the tribes would have been um, warring, you know, maybe some over disagreements and things like that, but quite a lot of it would have just been essentially raids resources um but it's interesting because it's it's from what i found from a few historians probably the biggest inaccuracy that they consider is happening in this film which is to not say that there's many inaccuracies so it makes this one really stand out is that these two tribes would have probably been in different standing with each other that it would have actually been the lakota going after the pawnee more often than the pawnee going after the lakota did i say that backwards So. Just interesting. So, the, you know, D John Dunbar gets to the camp and 
has uh, the uh, the cab the cattle driver help him unload. The place is you know abandoned. It's disastered. It's it's really in in bad shape. Kevin Costner decides I'm gonna stay here. I'm gonna I'm gonna fix it. You know he's like he felt like it was a heavenly place and he felt very peaceful and he wanted to make the base what it should be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we have, you know, a long series of sequences of him working on the, on the base and tilling the land and fixing the fences and, you know, cleaning up the, you know, dead animal carcasses in the water and so on and so forth. But as you like, see wider shots, like, he really didn't fix the building structurally at all. <laughs> There's still like more or less like mud. I think the big improvement time. that they showed he made was like a uh, like a canvas out over the front of it. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of like that was kind of like the main improvement. <laughs> Place still looked kind of drafty to me. <laughs> yeah. Um. So then we get our first introduction to the wolf, which is called Two Socks, and. Two Socks and the horse, which I don't know what the horse was named, are essentially his Wilson for the whole, for most of the movie, if you will. You know? Yes, and, definitely. And, you know, he, he forms a bond with this wolf and he forms a bond with the horse. This horse is the, probably the most intelligent character in the entire movie by far. <laughs> it's just um, amazing. So he. I put this funny note here. So he's like doing laundry in the river and he's fully naked washing clothes. <laughs> like, okay, sure. Whatever. I guess no one else is around. Nobody's bothered. Him. Sure. Um, I think the other thing to think about that too, is that, you know, we might take it, um, you know, not to mind as much these days, but uh, you know, somebody like him in that situation might've only had like, one or two or maybe three outfits with him. You know what I mean? So it's actually conceivable that he needed to be naked to be, <laughs> to be doing that. But maybe he's just a weirdo that likes to be out in the breeze. Who knows? <laughs> it's he's only him and two socks on the horse, you know? <laughs> Pretty funny. So um, I have this note that I don't know what I meant by it says, oh, naked scares away a native american i guess <laughs> was somebody like looking at him did they oh oh no they, oh, i'm sorry now i know why i wrote that so i guess it was the was it the pawnee they're trying to steal the horse or was it the lakotas it was the kids uh so i'm trying to what think of chain of events here now so he's yeah because the kids try and steal his horse at night at a point. Um, and then I'm trying to think, I think he gets approached by um, some of the group that he ultimately ends up befriending. I think it is the Lakota. I think so. Too. Um, sort of. I think, that, you know, you know what I, I am remembering now they show up on a hill nearby and notice that like he's there and um, they kind of like come down and like approach him. And um, the one guy who's a little bit more aggressive, whose name I'm forgetting at the moment, um, kind of comes down and, and sort of has like a, a little bit of a standoff with him where he's sort of yelling at him like, do you yeah. see I'm not afraid of you and things like that? And he's holding the pistol at him. I, I think he was quasi dressed at that point, though. I don't remember that he was completely naked mm. when they came to him there. Yeah, I guess he was because then like they have the shot of him riding away and his butt's out. 
or yes. something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but he has the pistol at him, but, uh, you know, apparently he wasn't scared away <laughs> or whatever, but yeah. So they, 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 they steal the horse, right? But then the horse comes back because the horse kind of like escapes from them. Yeah. The horse several times, um, in, you know, I'm trying to hopefully not mix my horses up here, but it seems several times people try to snatch the horse away. Um, And not only does it end up back, which is believable that it would come back, but somehow it also ends up like back in its pen several times. I feel like without him necessarily letting it in, which maybe is just like a um, oversight or something like that. Uh, Incidentally, I had to look it up. Wind in his hair is who I was thinking. That's what it is. Wind in his hair. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And you know, so, so yeah, the, the horse gets away. And comes back and he's perfectly in the pen and all is right in the world. But now comes one of the the bigger plot devices in the movie is he, he needs to fortify the base. And so he starts hiding all the extra weapons, extra food, all the guns and so on and so forth. And you're and in your brain, you're like, oh, those guns are coming back to appear again later in the movie. And <laughs> they do later. but. It's it's interesting because he does all of this stuff and he's by himself and he's, you know, monologuing and we're hearing the whole conversation to himself. How he's got to protect the base and protect all the stuff. And he he's also starts like rationing his own food, eating less than he needs because, you know, he doesn't know when someone's going to come out here to help him or, or they're going to send other troops, so on and so forth. It's very interesting how they they do that. And. I wanted to ask you at this point, like, do you feel that there was too much narration or just enough? So, you know, different movies approach narration differently. And sometimes I think it works well. And sometimes I don't, I think it works well in this film because as we mentioned earlier, the other half of the film is in a different language and is subtitled. So the narration largely becomes the like English link back. Right. So from a purely like English speaking person's point of view, it almost becomes like refreshing to just like catch, you know, breaks in communication where it's like back in the language that you can clearly understand without having to read the subtitles and things like that. I am somebody who doesn't mind a lot of narration and a lot of exposition. I know there's a lot of other people out there that hate that. Um, and and don't want to be banged over the head with that. I think the fact that he's doing it as a journal, like especially because the journal plays so heavy into the plot as the movie goes on, um, that it it's important and it makes sense to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think particularly for somebody in this time period, it also makes sense because you know if you look at him in the position that he's in you know, there's this expectation that other people are coming and that he's essentially preparing this space for them. So not only is this journal like a personal journal, but it's also essentially a record of the work that he's doing. And, um, you know, like essentially like a soldier's log, essentially for, for, you know, whoever is commanding officer, which when the people do show up later, he tries to send them to, 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 you know, not only prove who he is, but to show what he's been doing. Um, so, I think it works. I think it's fine. I don't mind the narration. 
you know, given, like I said, I watched the three hour and 50 some odd minute version of this and like end of the day, it didn't feel like I did. I mean, it took me two different nights to watch it, but that's just because time in my life. I don't have four dedicated hours to sit in a row, but um, you know, I, I don't mind it. Uh, That said, probably uh, my other half would complain about it (laughs) and I know other people who would. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure even out in listener land, there's a few of that are like, but you know, for me, if you use something like narration, as long as you're using it well, um or with purpose i think it it makes sense and you know like these being sort of his personal insights um into what he's feeling and what he's experiencing because there's whole other scenes where it's just quiet and you're just experiencing like what he's doing or what he's seeing or things like that so i think it's a good juxtaposition to that fair enough i'll I'll agree so as we mentioned later on the uh lakota Sue kids come back and they want to steal the horse now and he hears them coming it gets rustled and so on and so forth and he gets tries to get out of his little bunker and gets knocked he knocks himself unconscious <laughs> and and this is like the first in a several series occasion where this guy has gotten full blown concussions knocked unconscious <laughs> it's like Unbelievably, that this guy takes a blow to the head. But again, the 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 kids steal the horse. The horse escapes the kids, comes back, and the next morning, the horse is just chilling there. When he wakes up from his unconscious state with a huge bruise on his head, and just like, oh, okay, you came back, great, thanks, cool. Yeah, I mean, again, this was another funny scene. It was a little bit of a world building scene because they wanted to establish this little group of youngsters who kind of plays a secondary role um, throughout the film um, and ultimately comes, you know, again, around to fruition toward of, you know, the very end of the film. Um, but I think it was literally just kind of like establish their characters. Yeah. Um, it, it seemed a little cornball version of this character for him because he's kind of a cool operator under pressure at several other times. I mean, I guess you could excuse somebody being woken up in pitch black darkness for, you know, stumbling into their doorway and knocking themselves out. It it was a little goofy, this scene, you know what I mean? Like for like the movie, pretty playing fairly seriously and, um, you know, in, in like a positive way overall. Um, this scene was like a little bit of like, ha ha, he knocked himself out. What an idiot. Oh, the kids screwed up and they fell off their horse, you know? So I don't know. It was, it was kind of a funny little scene, but I don't know. I guess it sort of just sets the stage a little further again that they're they're essentially quasi, you know, confronted him slash raided him twice now. And that finally sets it into his head that I guess he then needs to go off and try and make peace or speak with them as sort of the what he takes away from that, which I think is an interesting thing for that character to sort of take away. <laughs> right. No. And this same night, we meet Mary McDonald's character, who we find out her husband was killed by the Pawnee tribe. You never actually see him get killed. You just see wind in his hair and the other like soldiers of the tribe come back with the body and present it. And and now she begins her, her mourning process. And it's it's kind of hard to fully wrap your head around because like you don't 
you don't have any connection with the husband, but you do have a connection with her as the time goes on. So, like, there are points in the movie where you almost forget that her husband died, uh, you know, yeah. and, you, and then, you know, they bring it back later. Like, oh, you know, she's in mourning and it's like, OK, you kind of get you get going. And now her her I guess you would call him her surrogate father is the kicking bird character who's like the the holy man, they say, which I always thought it was the medicine man, but he's really a holy man, which I find interesting. He then says that he ne- we need to go meet this this white man at this base and see what he's all about. And they have this. Well, again, before we even get to that, like this is where that sort of third suicide happens, um, where essentially she's out on the prairie in such um, upsetment over losing her husband that he stumbles across her, essentially slitting her wrists. She was, yeah, probably not. (laughs) Um, uh, I was thinking I was going for something else there. Uh, Heights of depression. Um, She's, uh, you know, the third person here now who is essentially like, I'm going to take my life. So damn, the prairie up to this point is a very sad place to live. <laughs> yeah. And, but, and uh, you know, he finds her and he, he rescues her and brings her back to the tribe. And I, for, I must've forgot to put it in my notes for some reason. Who knows? Whatever. Yeah. But this is kind of what puts him in at least kicking birds, good graces um, right. where, you know, I think up until this point, they're like, Oh, why is that? you know, white man out there, we got to deal with him. And now all of a sudden, like there's this realization, like, all right, maybe he's, you know, he just came to help bring her back. You know, he's not here to cause anything, you know, and this is where all of a sudden we're sort of extending the olive branch and all of a sudden where they start deciding let's meet each other and start kind of having some mutual ground. Right. And so they have this funny scene where, you know, Kicking Bird and Sam to the Fist and a few other of the soldiers go to the, the, the fort and he introduces them to coffee. And he's got this like old school coffee grinder. It's a really kind of cute scene, but it goes on a little too long. Like, like <laughs> he's just like really grinding. It. It's, just, it's just like, all right, we get it. It takes a while to make this coffee. But it was it was kind of weird. But then there's this funny scene where they're like they're grabbing clumps of sugar and they're throwing it in the coffee. It's, it's pretty pretty clever. But I'm like, they're Native Americans. They probably had sugar beforehand. Well, this is I, I'm so glad you said so because I was just about to say that this is another um, historical inaccuracy in this film um, that these tribes um, for decades before this would have been trading with white people. And so they would have already long since been introduced to sugar, to coffee, and specifically something that comes up again later, and I'm sure we'll get to it, to guns. Um, the, these tribes, particularly um, this particular tribe, um, the Lakota Sioux, were long since um, owning and using guns and rifles right. um, that they would have gotten from traders and hunters um, in trade um, by this point. So um it's as you say it's kind of a cute thing it's kind of like a we're meeting each other sort of thing we're introducing each other to different things this is where it gets a little hinky as far as that like all right i'm the white guy i'm showing you this this brand new thing and they're like mesmerized by it and all this sort of thing as far as history itself goes this is concepts and things that these people would have already been very familiar with at this point so it's a little bit of like a eh, kind of thing in here um but again it's 
it's just for that sake of, you know, how do we start getting common ground with each other? I think the other thing you glossed over here, which is my favorite, is the initial, like, they come down the hill to meet him, and the next thing it cuts to is, like, him crawling around on the ground, making the horns with his fingers with, like, Tatanka, Tatanka, Buffalo, Buffalo. You know, <laughs> like, uh, that's kind of like the very first initial uh, communication they're making with each other before he, they start bringing more of the group, and I, I got a kick out of... Uh, that is funny making a fool out of himself and they're like he's like he's he's mad in the head or something like that it's like, great <laughs> pillow up in the back of his shirt and he's crawling yeah. around like <laughs> tussling the dirt and i'm like oh my god i forgot about but that. it's cool too and it's worth pointing out because buffalo and their ties into this tribe both in this movie and real life um is important and it plays a huge role as this movie goes on. So it's kind of cool that like the first thing that they're really communicating about is Tatanka is Buffalo. And by the way, like I said, Michael often renames himself when he joins me on the uh, recording session here. And so he's Tatanka tonight. So <laughs> it's, it's worth throwing that in there. It is definitely worth. So I, I unfortunately can't rename myself. I, otherwise I'd come up with something more fun. You, I think, I think my name tonight would be dances with chihuahuas. <laughs> Oh boy. Oh boy. That's pretty funny. Yes. So, um, you know, I, I, I just kind of, as I was watching this movie, I kind of had a lot of free thinking. And so we have this scene now where, where, uh, kicking bird tells stands with the fist that you need to translate for me so I can talk to this man. And she's, afraid to make the white word she says and like she doesn't remember how and then we have this flashback to we see you know as, as we said the pawnee are attacking her parents and killing her whole family and she runs away and we don't see her actually meet up with the lakota sioux but we you know we assume obviously at some point she does so this is more or less as we're getting close to the end of the first dvd that i had and to this point, for the most part, I felt like they were pretty respectful in a lot of cases to the culture and were honest to like trying to to treat the characters of the Native Americans with respect in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean, and again, just to add to that thought, because um, I forgot to mention it before. Um, even the clothing, the teepees, all the things like that were actually made as they would have been out of actual hide and, um, animal parts and things like that. So it's actually, the, the, I got to give them credit. They did a really good job trying to, um, portray them as accurately as they possibly could to the time that they were going for. Mm -hmm. That's cool. So here's the funny thing. So. These are rifles in the 1800s. I never see them reload the gun once in any of these scenes that he uses it, right? <laughs> so they're they're going out now and they get they ask him to join them on like the buffalo hunt when they go at first first he says that he hears and he feels the buffalo. And so he gets on his horse and he races to them and tells them and they mount like a a search party to go try to find the 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 buffalo. And the first time they find him, they're all dead. They were just literally murdered. And you're to assume that they were killed by white people, um, you know, soldiers or whatever. You never see it. 
you never see who this faithless, nameless villain is that's killing these animals, but you're to assume it's, you know, white settlers or, or something. And then, you know, they go again later on. They they literally, he says something cool in the movie that I didn't write down, but it was cool. Like, they they find another herd of buffalo. And he says they pack up the entire village in a matter of, like, a, in a military form, like, super efficient way. And they had everything all packed up and ready to go. And it was really kind of cool to watch how they did this because they really... They showed a lot of it, them breaking down the teepees, getting them onto these like carriages, moving the whole thing, moving the whole tribe, and and he's riding his horse, talking with Kicking Bird and with Stands with a Fist, and kind of like they're going to look for the buffalo and so on and so forth. They they get to the buffalo, they find this huge, huge open field of, of buffalo. They they choose to do this as their hunt. And they they hunt the buffalo and he's riding his horse firing at them with a rifle never once reloads um, <laughs> i don't know how that's possible that he could he could fire with such accuracy <laughs> and it's unbelievable but so I, i'm not going to claim to be an expert um i did make note that what he's using and what he ultimately supplies them with is what would have been called like a repeating rifle um so unlike what we usually think of as like the stereotypical rifle where you're like pow- putting the powder in and stuffing it down with the um, thing like that. This actually did have a little magazine on it. I don't think it's a terribly large number, like probably like a half a dozen rounds or so. Um, okay. But so it's conceivable that he'd be able to make several shots with this rifle before needing to reload, you know, the magazine with, with further things. But it it is an interesting point, but I, that's that movie magic of, of non reloading guns. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he ultimately, you know, they 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 get a, bu- a bunch of buffalo they kill and and they keep. And at the end, like one of them is is charging at this young boy who's named uh, Smiles a lot. Is that what they call him? Right? Smiles. Yes. A lot. Yes. And so he's charging and charging and and like, you know, the white savior comes in with his rifle and kills the buffalo and saves the kid. And that was like, mm, whatever. I get it. They, they were trying to do this in a way to sort of say like, hey, he cares about these people, too. He's trying to help them. But it does, you know, on a a 30 year, a fast forwarded lens of 2020, he looks like a white savior in this particular moment. It could have yeah. been anybody that could have saved this kid. But it is be the one. Yeah, well, it's a twofold thing. The first time he kind of becomes quasi heroic to them. And the reason he gets invited on this hunt is because he finds the buffalo herd essentially right. um yes. and it's really just luck of the draw because they happen to come by his place um so he like leads them to him the scouts confirm it and they invite him to come along and then as you say he saves this kid so then he kind of becomes the hero twice so this is where he starts kind of like becoming a de facto sort of member of their um tribe because they are appreciative of, of what he's contributing um some interesting notes, because this was a pretty fascinating um, portion of this movie. Um, like I said, this took them over three weeks to film this segment. They filmed this on an actual buffalo ranch with 3,500 actual bison. Wow. Um, and uh, it just took them a long time to do. They had uh, a number of um, stunt riders and things like that that were working with this, including, I want to say, 
something like upwards of like 10 to 20 um, actual Native American bareback stunt riders um, that were, you know, you know, they were using for this. Um, And then the other um, kind of funny fact that I thought was really silly is um, the buffalo that you're talking about um, that uh, races down and, and chases the kid. Um, is, uh, there's two buffaloes that were domesticated that they used for that, um, named Mammoth and Cody, and they both belong to Neil Young. Yes, that Neil Young. (laughs) Um, and, uh, they, uh, the one of them, uh, Cody, uh, was apparently obsessed with Oreo cookies. So in order to get him to charge that kid, they held up like Oreo cookies and he would like run to get the Oreo cookies. (laughs) <laughs> is that the funniest thing i thought that was really silly as i was like reading about all this like behind the camera stuff um like they, said, they would hold up some oreos behind the camera and he would like charge at it to go and come get the oreo cookies so That's very funny but uh yeah just really work. interesting thing but my goodness like the logistics of working with uh that you know they had um uh teams of drivers they had uh helicopters um, yeah. things like that to get the, the group moving. But I mean, you know, those are real bison when they get stampeding, they're stampeding, you know what I mean? So it, it's really quite something. So it's, it's crazy that they were able to do what they did because, you know, these days it would be like a CGI flock. They would probably not go out and, and, you know, spend the time to get all these actual, uh, ones. And of course, you know, they had several, um, I don't want to call them animatronic, but you know, like uh, dummy. Uh, yeah. bison and things like that that they were using to uh you know have some of the ones that take falls or, or be killed or things like that so um just really interesting <laughs> even just the way it's shot though is really i mean the the dust that's getting kicked up in the field the way the camera sort of moves with the the them chasing the buffalo is is pretty well done like it's it's yeah i got that in focus I mean, Totally. When you lift the uh, the curtain that that's taking place on, on a ranch, if you can forget that for a minute, it's just stunning. You know what I mean? And it's like it's such a cool look into such a fabulous bygone era in our country where you don't have these herds. And, you know, it's important to point out, besides the bison, that they spend a lot of time with the Mustangs, um, the wild horses of the plains and, and, you know, like the Native Americans relationship with them. Um, and it's just really cool because those sort of things just don't exist in that capacity anymore. Um, so it's, it's really beautiful to capture it in a way that it can be preserved and and we can kind of, you know, see that as it would have been. Yeah. Then there's a gross moment for those of us who don't eat meat, (laughs) um, where, uh, listen, it's gross for those of us that do eat meat too. Wind in his hair, like cuts open a buffalo, pulls out like a big chunk of like raw fat meat, takes a bite out of it, then hands it to John Dunbar and tells him to bite out of it, and he bites it too. Like this raw, like literally cut open the animal, grabbed a chunk of meat, looked like a giant. I think it's it was yeah, I think I think it's supposed to be like that. It's his heart or something, or maybe his liver or something like that. Look like a liver. Look like a liver. I was like, oh boy, I'm gonna lose my lunch. And <laughs> so it's you know the funny thing about this thing was I thought that they spent a longer time 
trying to actually find Buffalo than what was in the movie. There's only like, hey, have you seen Buffalo? No, I haven't seen any Buffalo. Oh, I heard some Buffalo. Oh, let's go find them. Oh, they're dead. Oh, look, there's more. <laughs> Great. Got it. Cool. I was like, yeah, but you know, I think that's with purpose. I think, you know, part of what they're trying to talk about there is that the folks were hunting them as as we know now to near extinction um you know for for relatively silly purposes i mean again this is another one of these things where it's like a slight inaccuracy that they sort of make mention that they were like hunting them for like their hides and tongues when in actual fact um they would have been using and, and actually trying to get quite a lot more of them not even the tongues really um but uh you know they were very wantonly and in much greater numbers hunting them because especially, you know, and again, like I said, you know, the Lakota would have already been hunting them with rifles when they took up using the horses that uh, also improved their ability to hunt them. But, you know, American and Canadian um, hunters were moving into this space and also, you know, really doing a number on them. And I think that's kind of the point. I think that's sort of the thing is like this tribe needs those animals to live and like the fact that they're scarce is like a big problem for them you know what i mean that said i I don't think they could spend the whole movie lingering on them because it's it's you know beyond the scope of the story of of what they're getting at but i think they really do try to like nail home that like they have to be nomadic and try and follow these animals otherwise they don't survive themselves without the supplies that they provide makes sense fair enough so I, I, you know, you know, because the other reason I'd say there's also another scene. I don't know if you have it in your notes here or not, where he returns to their camp. Um, I think after the scene when they find the dead buffalo and he comes into their camp at night and there's like a giant mound of like all the stuff that was taken from the buffalo and also oh. like human hands. And like you find that their tribe had gone and found the hunters and like killed them and essentially like reclaimed some of that you know what i mean so yeah no i i did i i didn't put it in my notes but it is significant that he like he does come back and he sees this and they're and they're having a party or they're you know they're celebrating that they they got the victory, these guys, yeah. you know and it's i forget even what he says but like it's one of those things where it's it's sort of a moment of realization for him like both he realizes that you know the white man is is the villain but also like he he sees that you know people of his culture essentially were were killed by them and he he both sympathizes and and understand he he like he like sees both point of views in the same moment and it's interesting yeah he kind of says something along the lines that like he sees their victory and understands like why they would have done this, but at the same time, it's like hard for him to swallow and for him to, to be a part of. So he kind of like sleeps like outside the camp. But I think he also, it's like, it's like a moment where he realizes like, cause he has this couple good like inroads with them. And then he kind of realizes how different they still really are. Yeah. Um, that, that like they would come back and be celebrating with like, you know, these people's like hands strung up and things like that, you know, and it kind of like turns his stomach in a way. So I, you know, that still kind of goes out the window as more time goes on in this, but I think it, it, you know, just reinforces for him at that moment in time that as much as he's started to ingratiate himself on their culture, that he is not truly a part of their culture or one of them really. So yeah, yeah, just interesting point in the movie. 
So as the story progresses into the like meat of the second act, you know, he's doing a lot of monologuing and talking about his he's talking more about his time with the tribe than his obligations to the military and he even says that he feels more obligated to the tribe at this point than he does to the military and I guess he spent so much time with this these people that he starts trying to learn their culture and he builds this big like bonfire and he sort of like dances around it in a similar way to that they would do during some sort of celebrations and it's interesting to see him kind of embracing this new culture and it's it's kind of fun it's a, it's not a long scene but it's an interesting scene and i think it's important cuz you see him like he's always changing in this movie and you start seeing that change visually on his person which i think was pretty cool yeah i mean this one is a funky one for me um just because <sighs> see this is this is like the point where, and again I, like I said, I think this movie does a really good job of actually not doing so much where it's like, you know, these people would be fine with or without him. You know what I mean? Like, so it's not like, you know, like, it's not like where he's like coming in and, and truly doing the full white savior thing. But this is a little bit of like where the cultural appropriation thing kind of feels like it pops its head up. Um, and, you know, like you could throw it away as like a, like a toss away scene. But it seems bizarre that he would like go back to his own camp by himself, light a bonfire and be dancing around the fire like that. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it like doesn't really serve a purpose. It's not him like practicing his language or or anything like that. You know, or, I don't know. It just seemed like a little bizarre in my mind when I was watching it. And again, like I'm not trying to like ride the uh, the enough. pony of of like, you know, he's like, you know, going, you know, and, and stealing their culture or something. But it just seemed weird. Like, you know what I mean? Like that you, somebody would like come back and like do that specifically on their own. Uh, it just seemed like a funny character beat for me. It, it is. I get that. I mean, you know, I do, I do see you're saying about the misappropriation point of view of it. I think, you know, part of it might have been that he felt that he couldn't necessarily celebrate with them because he's not a part of them, but he wanted yeah. to have it own sort of celebration in a similar way that's that's kind of how i looked at it i guess but i could see what you're saying like you know light a fire you know smoke a cigar whatever you gotta do <laughs> i don't but i i think he was just trying to feel like he was more of a part of them in that moment even though he couldn't dance with them at that time but i i, I could see both points of points of view well, especially because if I'm remembering correctly, it's a little bit of like it's during sort of like a montage of various other shots. It's another one of these like time is passing periods yes. in the movie. So it's not even like it was directly tied to anything, something with them. Yeah, it just kind of like and again, like, you know, people do this sort of stuff, you know, like not specific to this, but like, you know, just like when you're on your own, you sing a silly song, you do a goofy dance, whatever. So it just was like in his head, I guess. That, that, you know, like he'd seen them doing this and now he's just kind of doing it on his own. Um, I think the wolf is watching him from up on the hill. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, so I don't know. Just just seemed like a funny little character blip because <laughs> he's so stoic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like for the most part, he's so like stoic and serious that it just seemed like a funny moment for him to be doing that on his own. Yeah, they, they, he he is very, very like 
straight laced and stoic through 95% of the movie. And there's just like weird little moments where I'm just, it, he does have these like out of character moments that it's, uh, you know, whatever it is what it is. It's fine. Um, now he's asked to go spend more time with the tribe and two socks is following him and they're kind of like wrestling and playing with each other in the field. But here's my, my gripe with this, right? So he's, he's hustling with the wolf. He's, you know, playing with it. And, and this is essentially where he gets his, his name of dances with wolves is, you know, kicking bird sees him doing this, but he makes point of saying that, that the wolf won't take food from his hand but yet they'll play together and wrestle. It, it, it makes sense. Yeah. I don't remember this scene well enough. Um, you know, I, I remember that the reason he gets off the horse and sort of starts in my recollection, I thought he was just chasing the wolf around a bit. I don't remember if he actually touched him or, or wrestled with him. I'll take your word on that. Um, was that he realized he was following him and he wanted him to go back home because he was afraid they might like, shoot at him or something like that. So he's like, go home, go home. And he just like gets off and he starts chasing him. And I remember then it cuts to them up on the hill. Like, what's he doing now? Like now he's chasing that wolf around or whatever. I, as you say, I'd have to go back and rewatch it. Cause I don't remember if he was physically in contact with him because I do know what you mean. Otherwise that like the wolf is very standoffish and doesn't want to like come right up to him. And yeah. again, interesting note on the wolf. And I should say wolves. Um, they had two wolves that they were using to uh, film this. And they said that they were like, very standoffish and very difficult to work with and everything. So it's interesting how it, how it does play into the scenes where you do um, see them uh, interacting with them. <laughs> That's cool. That's interesting. Hmm. So um, I just appreciate that. Cause so many movies like go out and get like wolf, like dogs that yeah. like they actually like use like straight up wolves, you know, like quasi domesticated wolves naturally, but there's not, quite such a thing as a domesticated wolf so it's it's cool that they um were able to get some that were able to do whatever they did to to do it and i think it actually helped the character of two socks that it wasn't just like running up and like licking him and you know whatever yeah so this now this part for me comes out of nowhere all of a sudden like he's now living with the tribe they've given him his own tp and He's living with them now, full time, and it just—it feels like it came out of nowhere. Like it just sort of like poof. Now I'm living with you. I danced with a wolf. You gave me a name. Now I'm living with you. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Uh, I I was confused by this. Did you think that it just kind of happened very abruptly? <laughs> well, I mean, seeing as now that we're like probably like two and a half hours into the film at this point, I can't call it abrupt. <laughs> But, uh, you know, um, probably what I would say is just that, like, he's had so many interactions with them. And I think I think probably what it boils down to. And again, if uh, if I went back and rewatched even yet again, I might catch something as to why this is a little bit more. But I think, frankly, one of the things they're not great about is establishing well i mean time but i was gonna say establishing the distance between his fort and their camp you know sometimes it seems like it's right nearby and then sometimes it seems like it's several miles away um so i can't quite tell if it's one of these things where like as you said he now feels more obligated to them than to the military i think he's starting to let go 
of the need of being at the camp. Nobody's showing up. I think he's kind of getting past the point where people are going to come. It doesn't make sense for him to be that far away because like he's spending so much time with them and they've asked him to come and stay more. I think it's actually probably if I had to guess more him letting go of the military and the fort and finally accepting like, yeah, I'll I'll accept your invitation and come stay Mm -hmm. here and not like keep traversing back and forth between the two places as much. And especially because now he's making, you know, he's, he's forming so much more of a relationship at this point with stands with a fist um, to the point where, you know, they're getting pretty close to being an item. Um, And um, you know, he's very friendly with several members of the tribe at this point. He's, you know, hunting with them. He's doing things with them. I think it's just something out of convenience. I think he's just at this point friendly enough with them and tired, probably enough of traveling back and forth that he just decides it makes sense to, to just move in, you know, <laughs> probably for lack of a better phrase. You are right in the sense that like, sometimes it feels like it takes, you know, eight hours to get to his base. And then it's a, other times it feels like it's like, 10 minutes and they're at the base. It's, it's very confusing on how that, that works. Yeah. I get the impression that he's like a good, at least half hour to hour away from them. Mm-hmm. Just given like several plot points in, in the movie where he's had to travel between the two. So it seems like he calls them neighbors a lot, but it seems like they're a fair distance apart, which would make sense. And by half hour, hour, we're talking on a horse. On time. a horse. Not, yes. Not, yes. Not <laughs> Yes, in the in the mountains, in the plains as well. Yes. So, um, so now we get this moment where he he shaves off his. Well, we don't see him shave his mustache off, but he he has essentially shaved his mustache off and stands with the fist, asks him about it. And he says, "Oh yeah, I felt like it's time to shave it off." But I don't know why. Like, I mean, it, <laughs> well, the other thing too is he shaved his mustache, but he's also been letting his hair grow out at this point. Yeah. He's starting to again mimic their culture in a way right because you see all the men in this culture have like fairly long hair so now he's letting his hair grow he's probably noticed that none of them have mustaches so now he's kind of like you know given that up i mean i'll tell you one other funky thing about this film that hair is like a mane man (laughs) it is well speaking of manes one of the things that actually makes me itchy about this movie is the character of stands with fist because she's been a part of their culture for a long time, but she looks nothing like any of the females in the tribe. You know, she doesn't, she has this like just wacky windswept unkempt hair. She looks at times at times she like Like looks like a, like a wildebeest or something. Like she's just like, she looks like, like a cave woman or something. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's kind of hard to describe. Like it just like, is like really weird. Because all the other women in the tribe have their hair like really beautifully braided and like things like that. It seemed like an odd choice. And, you know, like I read something that like, you know, people praised her for her acting in this role. And I can't take anything away from that. But they were like, oh, they loved her like windswept hair. And, you know, you can certainly start calling his hair windswept at a point, too. Mm. Where do you fall on this? Do you think this is them skirting, having them appropriate? too much of the culture and like trying to make it like they've really are, you know, for all intents and purposes, like braiding their hair and, and and like really trying to treat themselves up like a member of the tribe would have looked or I don't know. Like, where do you fall on this? For me, it was like, for me, it was almost odder that she wasn't at this point, particularly that, you know, that she's been with this tribe since she was like six or something. 
And so you, so I, I looked like this, right? So her hair was very distracting for me in the movie at many points in the film. And yeah, she's been with the tribe, let's say, since she was six years old. She's probably around 30 or so at this point, maybe 31, 32, give or take. I mean, and- an interesting fact on that, as far as casting goes, Kevin Costner was looking for somebody, as he called it, someone with lines on their face. Um, so I think she was technically closer to 40. I think she was like 38-ish um, in this role, um, which, okay. you know, I there was a big push at that point in time for having lots of very young leading ladies with the older, you know, man main role. So, I, you know, I think this was another thing that was interesting that he really wanted somebody that, you know, was a little more lived, had some crow's feet, things like that, you know? Um, but that well, what I mean, like, <laughs> what I mean, like, I, I think like her character is what was supposed to be a younger 30, essentially, you know, in a way. And, you know, I feel like if you've grown up with this tribe, this is all you know since you were six years old. I thought her hair would have probably been at least more in the style that the rest of the, the women in the tribe had. Maybe not as braided or like, you know, down at least. I mean, even I, if it was straight, and again, it doesn't need to be like yeah, in any kind of fancy hairdo. That like wouldn't make any wild, sense. Like but it's just like a make. wild mop. You know what I mean? It's just, it just feels weird. It feels like, it feels like she's uh, savage at, at times, the way it looks. It's very bizarre. My only thought on this was because we first meet her with like the death of her husband. And as if she like, you know, because she's in mourning, she's sort of in this like crazy state. But after she's, you know, beyond that, her hair doesn't get any better. You know, like it doesn't. That's what I guess I'm saying. Yeah. Like even at the end of the film, it's it's still that like just wild poof. So I don't know. It's 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 a weird plot beat because they otherwise treat her as if she's just a full blown member of the tribe. And another again, another interesting thing to know and note about Native Americans in this area at this point, I can't say if this is specific to the Lakota or other tribes, is that they would often actually abduct um, women or children and bring them into their tribes to essentially, you know, bolster their numbers and become breeding stock and things like that. You know what I mean? So it's not unheard of that there would be somebody like this in that tribe. I just think it's a weird point. You know, like there's never a point in time where somebody says like, oh, she's a white woman. So therefore we didn't let her braid her hair in the traditional manner or something like that. Maybe that's part of why, you know, maybe that's why, but I don't know. It just seemed really weird that it was so, so wild the whole right. time. Because that's as much as I want to say about her wacky hair though. <laughs> because, because otherwise she's pretty much, you know, a member, a full blown member of the tribe, you know, exactly. she, you know, so, at some point, he goes back to the base, and he's there by himself for a couple of days. And the wolf finally comes over, and he just pulls a pow- uh, like a piece of, I guess you would call it like a you know dried meat or like a almost like a you know a slim jim essentially. Jerky. Yeah, jerky. Yeah, it's like a jerky, yeah. And and the wolf finally eats from his hand. And he feels fully bonded with this wolf as well as the horse. And these are like his. I don't know if they're like if, if tent pole is the right word, but they're like his his links to both worlds, essentially, you know, the wolf being in the wild and the horse being military. Like they're like his his 
his two connections to all things <laughs> of these two animals. And it's a cool moment. It's it's a it's a sweet moment. It's you know I like that part. But I thought it was important to mention that like he's finally fully connected to the the wolf, and then we find out that the Pawnee are coming to attack the you know the the Sioux tribe, and he says, "Oh, I've got guns. Let's go get them." And so he brings smiles a lot, and they they find the guns that he buried earlier, and you know, uh, kicking bird and and uh, wind in his hair, and the rest of the the soldiers go out to find the Pawnee, but like no, but they ask uh, John Dunbar to stay and watch the family and protect the tribe, and there's a, there's a few other of the men that stay there as well. But you know, most of the best fighters and everything are going off to look for the the Pawnee. And in your brain, you're like, "Well, obviously the Pawnee's going to come attack the base, and you know, you like, you know, this is going to happen." So therefore, you know, he go get goes to get the guns. They dig up the guns in the rain. It conveniently is pouring rain where it wasn't raining ten minutes earlier in the scene. <laughs> like, okay, but you no, know, now the the Pawnee are attacking, and they do this really cool like. They kind of hid. They've emptied all the tents. Nothing's in there. They're hiding safely. And now they come out and they start fighting back and they're shooting them. These these Native Americans fire these guns with such efficiency <laughs> and, and such accuracy that it it, it hard well, except for the one guy that tried to use his as a club for some reason, <laughs> which is like a little ungracious, you know, like that again, like. In reality, these people would have already known how to be using these and they would have had a stock of them themselves at this point. But if you can get past that, the fact that everybody else around him is is firing them and he's like trying to club somebody and John Dunbar has to be like, no, you shoot it. It was just like, all right, come on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> threw threw that, that one guy under the bus there for a little yeah. comedic effect or something. Yeah, it was for a joke. It was for a little bit of a laugh in, in an otherwise <laughs> moment. But. You know, it brought me back to the beginning of the movie where the Confederate Army can't shoot him for anything. And, you know, <laughs> but yet these guys are are shooting the 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 Pawnee moving on horses at high speeds with such accuracy and efficiency. I'm like, wow! Like this doesn't make any sense. Like it doesn't it doesn't jive with the beginning of the movie a little bit. Yeah, again, like I would say, and again, I'm no expert. So if you're out there and you're a Civil War weapons expert, I think the only thing I would say is like they had those like stock standard rifles in the field that like fire those like big balls and they don't, um, you know, particularly shoot straight. Whereas these repeaters are actually a, a better, more expensive rifle that are, you know, um, probably doing a little bit better, <laughs> I guess I would say. So I don't know. But but fair point. <laughs> For for what we are given as people who would be firing these for the first time, you didn't you didn't have that seven samurai sort of scene where like they're getting training all the villagers how to protect themselves. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, they 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 defeat the the Pawnee, but not necessarily. The, I don't know who the guy was that got killed. He wasn't the chief, but he was like another high ranking member of the tribe. Yeah, he's one of the elders. Yeah, yeah. and and so. Now they, you know, essentially, while this point where Kicking Bird is gone, stands with a fist and John Dunbar begin to fall in love. You assume that they have 
you know, sex in the in the reeds, I guess, I guess you could say. It's kind of confusing. But now they bring back that, like, oh, she can't be with him because she's still in mourning. But they haven't mentioned this at all up until this point in the movie. It just was like a convenient kind of thing. Oh, you, you, you can't be with her yet because she's in mourning and Kicking Bird has to free her from her mourning in order to allow her to marry you. And so the the whole tribe like offers up horses and food and trinkets and so on and so forth. And then they had this funny, funny moment where Kickingberg kind of walks up to Sands of the Fist and is like, you are no more mourning, period. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah, you will mourn no more. <laughs> and, That's right. And so... So now, you know, they decide they're going to get married. And it just, it's so, again, it's so quick that it this, this stuff happens that it's a little confusing. I'm like, are we, are we with these people for years, for months? I just don't know. I, I'm so confused. But, you know, they have this wedding and, you know, the whole time he's monologuing while Kicking Bird is kind of like going through their vows and Kicking Bird even makes him says, hey, are you even listening to me? Like, did you hear what I had to say? <laughs> like, and, you know, it, I don't know. What's your thoughts on this whole series of events? I mean, as you said, and we've said a couple times now, the, the time is a little loosey goosey in the film you're definitely expecting that probably at least months have gone by, if not at least a year um, because we've seen the seasons turning a little bit and things like that. Um, You know, (laughs) they sort of make a comment, um, you know, because kicking bird seems blissfully unaware that the two of them are kind of getting together and his wife sort of is like, Oh, the people, think it's a good thing and he's like what are they saying and she's like well they're both white it's a good match blah 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 so that's kind of what what sets it off but like you know uh, you could make this argument that they're like again they are the two white people with this tribe so that's a linking sort of thing but like they're also spending the most time together because you know that's become now the link for him to learn because uh, something we shouldn't gloss over is that he's been learning their language via her And vice versa, they've been learning a little bit of English. So, like, you know, she's been the common thread in all that because she was able to remember enough from when she was like a six or seven year old to start, you know, making a lot of these links. Again, I don't know how much of a logical leap that was because, you know, if I if my daughter went off to a foreign country now and was forced to learn that language and then like was asked to come back here 30 years later, not having experienced any English I don't know how much of this very specific language she would be able to remember or pick up or things like that. But as you say, time's going by. So maybe they're making more of these inroads and things like that. Um, you know, it's, it's a relationship of convenience. Um, you know, you could look at this movie. It just, it feels like, like this is the only, I, I don't know. Like I just, are things rushed? Maybe. I mean, like you could make the argument that there's a lot of other movies where the characters like are in love and like getting married like way quicker. So I'm like, I'm not going to go that route. I mean, it's, it seems like, you know, he's essentially quasi courting her for a time. Um, and again, I don't know enough about during that time period for either white or 
Native American culture, how quickly or how soon something like that would come together. I don't really know. Um, as far as the movie goes, I don't stumble on it. I feel like it's fine. Um, what I was going to say, which is, I'm you know curious, like if you remove the stands with fist character from this film, if you don't have a white woman who had become a part of this tribe 30 years ago or whatever, like how does this story progress? You know, like do they still learn each other's language? Does he fall in love with another member of their tribe? I mean, like, I don't know. It, it feels like she's there to give him somebody that can speak the language and somebody as a love interest. You know what I mean? So in that respect, it feels quasi tacked on, but in the same respect, like the two of them have such good chemistry um, and they kind of play off each other well enough. And like, she's not like neither one of them is like head over heels on each other. It kind of just becomes like a relationship out of time together. You know what I mean? So I don't know. It feels, it feels believable to me. I wonder if they didn't go with a native American actress because it would have felt too much like, you know, Pocahontas kind of a thing. Yeah. I mean, again, like I'm reaching here. I'm just, I don't no, know. yeah, no, I, I, that's what I guess I'm getting at. Like, I just don't know. Like, would there, first of all, is there a need for that type of interpersonal relationship? And then past that, like, would it have made as much sense? Would there have been a member of that tribe that would have spoken English? You know, how, how else would they have gotten to a point where they could start communicating? I don't know. I mean, it, she's there. It's part of the plot. It is what it is. You know what I mean? So, um, I, I think, I think it wouldn't have made sense if they didn't come together by the end. Like, you know, whether it happens now or a little bit later in the movie, I don't think it would have made any difference. I th I think it happens when it happens for the reason, you know, that it does. So then we have a point where the chief, which his name was 10 bears. He, he and John Dunbar have a conversation where he says one of the things that is one of my favorite lines in the movie. He goes, the whites take without asking. And I started thinking about that and I was like, wow, that's, that's probably really true. Like it's probably really the case that was when they were dealing with back then was that they just, you know, took without you know without any recourse or care. yeah and that's fair i mean the counter argument to that though is like we were talking about earlier like these tribes were also like raiding each other so you could argue <laughs> that they were doing the same thing i mean i guess you could say that it's more specific to the land that they kind of just come and like pillage like the bison and the land and they kind of um are very much just like you know the, the conquering you know you know, thing that our culture unfortunately has done for <laughs> the entirety of time just sort of rolls on through, you know? Um, but it is, it is interesting. And it, I think they have several interesting conversations like this, you know, like I, one of the plot points that we've sort of missed as we've been going here is the conversations that he continues to have with kicking bird, where kicking bird keeps pressing him on like how many white people are coming, when are they coming? And he like, doesn't have the heart or the will to like answer him that like it's going to happen. And then at some point he finally says to him, like, it's going to be like the stars in the sky. Like it's going to be like this innumerate number that is just going to completely roll over everything, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's weird. It almost takes as long as it does for him to finally come out and say that because he's been with them so long so at that point. Yeah. 
it's it's interesting moment and and that's kind of when they realize oh the soldiers are going to come to the base they don't really establish why they come to the base or what well, he goes back i think to get some supplies or to check on something and like it's they're just there no does he come back for that does he see, and he sees no because when he he first comes back to get the journal so this is no 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 he comes back to get the journal oh no he comes back to get yeah this is what it is he comes back to get the journal because they're going to pack up and leave. They're heading to like their winter camp or something similar, I think. No, 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 no. So I, I, this was the part that gets a little confusing in the movie. So he has this conversation and says, the white people are coming. They're going to find you one point or another, and they're going to come. You have to leave. We have to go find a new place to go. And so they agree that, okay, we need to move. And he says, oh, I have to go back to the base to get my That's journal right. yeah. because if they find it, they're going to know where you are and they're going to know everything about you. And at this point, we don't know that they're already there. So here's my problem with this whole series of events. He's been monologuing this whole time while he's been living with them. And the the monologue is established as him journaling. Why, if he's living in this teepee and he's been there for so long, would he have left the journal at his base? Yeah. Why, why would it, like, this is like his one thing, like his only thing that he holds dear is this journal. Why would it have left it there? He would, yeah. he would have left it there. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's a weird, weak plot point, and it's probably one of the bigger plot holes for the film. Not for nothing, because even if they did find it, like, look, he found them several times over because they're in such close proximity to where they live already. They were going to find each other. And past that, the only things that are really problematic for him is really the stuff where he's essentially self-incriminating himself for how much he's abandoned his post and has joined them. There's nothing in that that's particularly going to sell them up the river. I mean, like, what's the worst that the people come in and find out that they hunt bison and this and that. I mean, like, you know, the, the, the real downer part, and maybe it's like him just making an excuse is really the downer part is it's got all the information to him. Like I've abandoned my post. I've gone to move in with them. Things like, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe he's picked up another new journal at, at their place. I have no idea. Um, but it is, it is a weird thing. And, I, you know, I guess they have to get him back there for some reason. I mean, you could make the argument that like he comes across these people just like out on the planes too, right. but it, it's a plot point. It's a weak plot point. It's a weak MacGuffin. It's a weird little thing to get him back there. I'm so glad you said MacGuffin, but <laughs> you'd be so happy. So yeah, so now he comes back and they see him and now he's like in a hybrid Native American slash, you know, Westerner kind of clothes where he's wearing boots and pants and a collared shirt. But he's also got, you know, uh, Native American, the, 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 the chest plate that uh, wind in his hair trades with him for his vest. And so now the, the soldiers open fire on him. They don't hit him at all. But they hit the horse like five or six times, killing his horse. And this is like his moment where he realizes that 
his only friend, his true connection to his past life, which was this horse, is dead. And now he has no connection to the white man's world, essentially. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, like, you know, he's just been through so much with this horse. It's, you know, it's his horse, (laughs) you know, like it'd be like if they shot your dog. I mean, you know, it's it's just like it's a tough moment for him. And, you know, it really um, hits him like a ton of bricks. So, yeah, I I, I could see that. And, And again, now they knock him unconscious. So he's got like his third concussion in the movie at this point, maybe fourth. And, you know, now they bring him into the barracks and they kind of torture him and beat him. And we see one of the majors show up at the base who was also at the original base that kind of had a blink and you miss it moment in the beginning of the film where he's actually at Fort Hayes in the beginning of the film. And he's asking why why he's there. And look at my journal you'll see all the information you'll know what's going on yada 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 and you see wh- whatever that guy's name is like squibby or something yeah. like that. And, and i remember Spivy, I something like that yeah, yeah. so I, I remember this guy from he's the, the one when we were doing the preview review where i'm like that's the villain <laughs> i forgot how little a point in this movie but i just remembered hating him so much yeah i i forgot how much i hated this guy too and he's essentially you know john dunbar's arch enemy if you think of it that way yeah well he's literally using the poor guy's journal as toilet paper (laughs) he's lying about it that that the journal was there because the guy's like bring me the journal he's like there was nothing there you know (laughs) and i hated this guy and he's so hateable in this movie and he's literally just a scrub like he's a nobody like he's not even well, he's a- in the movie for like 20 minutes but like in that 20 minutes he's like oh you hate him so much he's got to die <laughs> yeah you hate him so much and you know they try to torture it out of him to figure out what's going on and he doesn't want to tell anybody and and then he starts speaking in 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 the uh sioux language and you know now that oh yeah you turned engine, didn't you? I'm like, oh man, it just felt so. I, I mean, it's what they would have said, yes, but it just felt <laughs> uncomfortable to hear it. Um, I don't even like saying it, but that's what it, that's what they said. Um, and then they decide they're going to take him back to their base where he's going to go to trial and you know be tried for treason and so on and so forth. And now the the Dakota Sioux, they they Lakota. I'm sorry. Now. The, the Lakota Sioux mount an expedition to rescue him, essentially. And they find this, like, perfect spot in this river, and they obliterate the the soldiers. Like, they wipe those guys out with such efficiency. It's yeah. unbelievable. And Kevin Costner's character kills the guy that stole this journal in the most brutal of fashions, but it was like, you wanted this guy to go. You're like, I don't like this guy. He needs to go. And it was so such a good scene. What's your thoughts on this, this scene of the movie? Yeah. I mean, you know, see, I, I gotta interrupt you. So I say, I, I say, it's a good scene. And you go, yeah, well, like, I'm like, Oh boy. It is. It's, it's a payoff here. The only thing though, is that 
the whole time that he spends with these, here's, here's, I guess what I would say. The funny thing about this movie is that it doesn't treat native Americans stereotypically, but it does like really lean on like oh, then like the evil white people stereotype, which is fine. Okay. Like it makes sense to what they're trying to do with this story. But what's funny is that this, like I said, this whole period of this movie is like what 20 minutes long you know from the time that like he comes back gets captured and then all that. i mean like for a, for a movie that's like four hours it's like a very little blip in the radar of what the rest of this story is and I, oh, I missed one part so when they're trying to bring him back to trial uh two socks is following them yeah and they start, they, <laughs> they start shooting at the wolf and they kill the wolf and that really like sets him off and it's basically his last last moment where he's like i have nothing to do with these people anymore like these are not my people anymore and you know they do really paint them as a one-sided villain it's just really cruel really vicious and again like i'm not going to say that that absolutely was not the case because you know um, there's just a lot of terrible people and you had to be kind of terrible to be doing some of what they were doing to those tribes and, and things like that. But it's almost so arch how this whole section plays out because you got like that one good major who's willing to like listen to him if he's got his journal, but then everybody else is just like evil and like, you know, they want to kill him and they string him up and, and all this sort of thing. And like, you know, it just comes and it goes so darn quick. And yes, it's, it's like, it feels like this great payoff, but like <laughs> this movie, you know, it's a long movie, whatever it's an Epic movie, but there's not specifically like, I guess they're trying to put a very visceral front on an antagonist. You know what I mean? Like there's this idea, there's like this hidden idea throughout the movie that the white people are coming and that that's like going to be the downfall of everything. And of course, obviously, as we know, as history goes, you know, that ends up largely for these people being the case, but how they play that out in this 20 minute time period where they capture him, they're going to kill him for essentially like good reasons. Like that, this guy who's a soldier who's supposed to be maintaining this post has abandoned his post, you know, has essentially left them traitor, whatever they're feeling, you know, from their point of view, it all makes sense. Um, and you know, they're just played so arch, so evil that like, you just immediately want them to be dead. It's a cool scene. As you say, like it really does play out in an awesome way. They found a great location for it with the river. You know, the one guy's trying to like creep away and then the young, um, native American, um, yeah, smiles a lot, you know, who this whole time has not been allowed to really participate and to kill and things like that finally does it. And you can kind of see this look of regret on his face. You're like, that's one of the bigger takeaways I have. It's almost like he's lost his innocence and now he's become like a member man of the tribe that, you know, you know, but like end of the day, like if they had just all picked up and left, nothing would have been any different. You know what I mean? You know, so like, especially because how, you know, the movie ends that he's now going to go back to civilization and try and like plead with people that'll listen I mean, if he shows up in the same garb, tries to explain that story, tries to do like he's going to be in the same boat. They're going to like, you know, call him a traitor, all this sort of thing. Um, you know, we're kind of at the end of the of the film here. So I think it's fair to say, like, 
I, there's actually a sequel to Dances with Wolves in a novel. They didn't make a um, a film, but there is a a novel sequel um, that is taking place. I think some ten years later, and a little bit about it. And I don't know much about it, so I'm not going to talk too much about it. But you know, I just can't imagine where that character goes at the end of the movie. That like he's not going to end up in essentially somewhat of the same scenario for having abandoned his post. And now on top of that, having murdered this, you know, crew of soldiers that had come out to man this post and things like that. Um, so I don't know. I, I guess what I would say is like the, the whole section of him being captured by them and the end result feels fine, but it also like, I feel like you could like pull that whole section out and the movie would be just fine without it. I agree. I think that's a fair assessment because you know, now, you know, the last 15 minutes of the movie, they get to this winter camp, essentially, and he's fully immersed into the tribe. Now he's married to her. You know, you know they're trying to have a baby and so on and so forth. But he tells, you know, the tribe, hey, you can't stay here. They're coming for you. I can't stay with you because if they find me, they will kill all of you. And well, and that's, yeah, that's the thing. Like, and that's kind of how he leaves it off. Like the fact that they killed all those soldiers, they're going to hunt him down now, like essentially for that, which is a weird jump in logic because if those people didn't know he was supposed to be there, like nobody would know that he was the one that killed them. But like the idea now would be that they'd probably assume that this native Americans killed them. So his whole thing is I need to go find somebody who will listen. And Clearly, nobody does. You know what I mean? Like the movie, the, the beautiful sweeping movie, and then it ends with like this little like text crawl that's like thirteen years later, um, with the tribes decimated and and white people having taken over the prairie. Like blah blah blah, whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we know history. We know it doesn't turn out like great. You know what I mean? Like they end up all being put on reservations, and and they end up you know where they are. You know, so I mean, it's it there's there's not like a happy ending and it. it almost feels like a cop out that little bit of i almost cop wish they out. didn't write it honestly i almost wish they didn't write it like i wish that like you just like he he either stays with the tribe and that's just what it is or he goes off to to do whatever he thinks he's going to do and it just ends you know what i mean because I, it's like we know the history you know <laughs> things don't turn out so hot um, i really what the way it should have ended cuz this ending really bothered me because you know, he says that he needs to leave the tribe and, you know, to, to protect them and to go find people that will listen, which who will listen, you know? Yeah. And, and on top of that, so he, you know, stands with a fist, has to go with him too. Like, this is the only life she knows and she's going to leave, you know, she doesn't speak great English. You know, she doesn't yeah. speak well enough that she could, you know, they're going to assume that she's a Native American. Like, they're going to put themselves in a, in a more precarious situation whereas if he and her were to stay with the tribe and they kept moving he could have kind of acted more like a liaison if in in a sense as opposed to now like you're on your own good luck yeah. like i'm you know that that part really bothered me that whole ending sequence and now here's the other thing that i that i made note of like at the end of that fight where they kill the soldiers the journal goes down the river but smiles a lot finds it and he's sitting the opposite direction of the way the water was going and oh, gives him the river physics 
and you know it's a, it, but at that point the journal didn't matter anymore because it's like it, it was it was just it well it doesn't matter in the respect that somebody might find it and somehow that's going to undo a bunch of things i mean like you you can make the argument kind of going back to this whole thing that they're worse off for having tried to go get the journal than they would have yeah. been if somebody had just found the journal uh, particularly since the guys who ended up finding it were using it as toilet paper but um, you know, I guess you could make the argument that he's brought that back to him because it was important to him and it's got memories of his time with them and things like that. I- I'd be surprised if the thing's not wasted for having been in the water. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I don't know how waterproof those pages were. <laughs> you very closely because he flips through the pages. A lot of, a lot of the ink has run on the pages yeah. and stuff like that. And you see that in the shot. But it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know, the, the, the movie goes to such great length to establish his connection to those people and embracing that culture. And then the way it ends just kind of felt very rushed and forced and, and flat. And now we mentioned something earlier that I want to bring a point of now. So the beginning portion of the movie up until the last half an hour or so of these big grandiose wide shots and beautiful areas and it's just breathtaking sweeping you know s- scenery and so on and so forth as the movie gets closer to the end the shots get smaller the scenes get smaller the locations get smaller and it just get really like it it felt intentional like the cinematographer trying to say like hey these people started out with this big world. Now their world is getting smaller and smaller. Kind of true to what happens to the Native Americans in real life is like, you know, their their tribal land is just, you know, if it was this gigantic area, now it's a little, you know, speck of... That's a really interesting way of looking at that. I mean, I think another way you could think about that is um, almost his perspective that like he's going in and seeing and experiencing these places for the first time and they're like breathtaking. And then as he's becoming more and more a part of them and their land and their area that like it just becomes part of the the daily for him. So then it's not as like grand as, as anymore. But I actually really like your uh, your concept of that even a little better. I also, you know, this might be reaching, but I noticed, you know, when we first see the their first, you know, camp or their first village, it's super wide, kind of like, you know, a lower angle kind of kind of looks like it's up and sprawling the shots when they're in the snowy areas all shot from high up on on a on a high angle and it's, and it's all looking down at it so it feels smaller too which is an interesting way that they did the camera work and i thought that was kind of clever and i i appreciated that but overall i felt like the ending you know hurt the film it just doesn't feel yeah i mean the one thing that's really poignant and i really do like about the ending is um when wind in his hair is up on the cliff. Oh, that's a cool um, one. And it's hearkening back to earlier in the movie when he's like yelling, like, I'm not afraid of you. I'm wind in his hair. I'm not afraid of you. And now he's like, do you hear me? You're my friend. You know, I want you to know I'm your friend. And, you know, and like, you know, really just like a nice, like poignant thing. And I kind of like how John sort of like has a non-reaction to that because it, it kind of plays into the fact that like, he's doing this harder thing, which is to leave and, and all this sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, you know, again, 
the the way that the movie winds down, it's it's hard to bring something like that to a stop. You know what I mean? Like a big epic long movie like this, kind of like a freight train. Once you get it rolling, it's it's chugging, it's chugging, and then it's like it's got to kind of come in for a stop. And it kind of just like you know they have this last little. I mean, you could you could say there's like three final endings. There's the ending where they defeat the Pawnee. There's the ending where they defeat the people at the fort. And then there's the ending where he decides he has to leave and, and go back to white culture and try and speak to them and, and get them to listen about what this culture is really like and that they're not savages and that they're a proud people and an amazing people, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, you know, I think by the time you get to that ending, the maybe more movie going satisfying endings of like those couple of battles being over is kind of out the window. And now it's like this thing where it's like, it's not a happy ending. You know what I mean? Like there's no happy ending to the story, but the happy ending you could conceive of is that they go off to wherever and, and nobody bothers them ever again. You know what I mean? And that's just where it ends. But he kind of makes this other choice where he's like, I need to leave you and whatever. So it's a sad ending. You know what I mean? So it, it, it kind of leaves you like, oh, <laughs> you know, he spent all these uh, hours of, of my life, you know, becoming a part of this people. And now he's going to leave them. So it just kind of feels like, wah, wah. So, yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, overall, speaking of bringing a, a freight train into the station here. Um, overall, amazing movie, long movie, but amazing movie uh, didn't feel long to me. Um, you know, well, once you're into it, it doesn't feel long. At least the first, you know, two and a half hours didn't feel long. A little bit of the end felt a little bit, you know, dragged out. But overall, I, I really liked this movie. This was a lot. Yeah. Of, it's a good movie. It's a long movie, but it's it's definitely interesting to watch, and it's it has really good moments in it. It is. It's it's a beautiful movie. You know, I mean, both visually and um at its heart. Um, they, they just tell a really interesting story. I think it's even more fun having the perspective of now, um, having looked into it and learning a little bit more about the back end of it and, and things like that. You know, they did a good job. They did a really good job with it. There's nobody listening to this podcast that, um, I would need to convince that this is the case. I mean, there might be some people that just plain out hate it, but that's probably for the people that are just like, oh, it's too long. <laughs> but um, I I just, I don't know. I think they did a really wonderful job with it. Um, I think it holds up 30 yeah, years later. I, I think I have enjoyed it more watching it again all these years later. Um, you know, I, I think as I've had a few times happen on this show um, that I appreciate some things more that I didn't necessarily appreciate as much when I was younger. Um, mm. And again, it's just, it's just one of these ones where, I mean, it, it's maybe silly to call it timeless because it is such a period movie, but it's a very timeless movie. I, I think I could show this to the kids in another 10, 20 years. And like, you know, it would still be relevant then, um, you know, it's, I don't know. I mean, I, I think they just did a really genuine good job with it. And I think they put a lot of TLC into it to make it what it is. And, it, you know, it won the awards for a reason. It it, it really just stood on its own. Um, I agree. And I agree. it's totally. impressive for what they did with, with what they used to get there. So. So overall, get a grade this movie. Give it a grade. I give it an A. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's an, an American Western 
classic, uh, you know, um, and, and probably unlike a lot of other Westerns, which are really just like shoot them up, you know, big, you know, sort of things like that. I think this one just really has a heart and delivers it. Cool. All right. I, I, I agree. I'll, I'll, I'll second that notion. Like, you know, other than the few little plot beats that I thought were kind of funny, I I'd give it an A also. Yeah. Cool. All right. So (laughs) choo choo. We brought that train into the station. So So, game with you real quick. Okay. So I recently purchased some, some fun little things for the podcast by a company called pod decks. Oh, and, and basically it's a, it's a deck of cards that has random questions. And this box says, would you rather? Nice. I'm going to card. I haven't looked at any of these cards and I'm going to read you this question and we're both going to answer it. This is how we're going to end the show this evening or okay, today. Cool. Or, listen. <laughs> so, would you rather work with dead people in a mortuary or work in the busiest ER trauma unit in the world? Um, ER trauma unit. <laughs> you know, these, uh, these, uh, these things never work out either way. <laughs> um, but, uh, I do not think I would want to be chilling with corpses all day. Um, if I, I don't know to which capacity I would be working in the ER. Um, I, this this is I guess this card is assuming I have either some degree of medical expertise or um, something. <laughs> but if that's the case, I'd rather be helping people that I could still save than people that are already on to the next thing. I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know. People have been listening to this podcast long enough um, know that I'm creeped out easily, so I, I don't think I want to be around the dead people. <laughs> sure, that's a good point. Yeah. So. What do we have in store for us next month? Next month is the fabulous Kindergarten Cop, which I am looking very much forward to. And uh, we have a guest that will be helping us out on the first portion of the podcast, who is a real-life kindergarten teacher, although I think he's moved up to some other grades quite more recently, but has for years and years taught actual kindergartners. So we'll have a real-life professional perspective on how accurate uh, Arnold's portrayal of a kindergarten teacher is <laughs> in in this film. Um, so uh, you have that to look forward to. Um, yeah. And in the meantime, um, obviously this episode is going to be dropping on Christmas day. I hope you're not necessarily listening to this one on Christmas day. Maybe some of my Jewish friends are, um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, outside of that, um, we'll, uh, we'll be, you know, starting with a whole new slate in the new year. Um, if I can get myself to, um, fix our socials because I've been lazy in my, uh, social media software I was using stopped working. So I've been not posting as readily, but I got to get on Hootsuite or something different that is working. Um, and, uh, see if I can get that going again. Uh, but you can, you can still contact us there. I, I reply individually to stuff that people send. I just not been good about posting myself, but, um, do feel free to, to reach out to us there where as usual box office 30 um three zero at facebook and twitter and with t-h-i-r-t-y on instagram let us know what you thought about this overlong although i don't know what you guys were expecting review of (laughs) of of dances with wolves 
Yes, and uh, you know you can uh, you can find us in the new year, and we'll be putting our our slate of upcoming movies out on socials there, so you'll see what's coming up past um, the fabulous and I can't wait to review it, um, Kindergarten Cop. Yeah, I can't wait. I mean, you luckily get to do the notes for that one. (laughs) Yeah, and I might even pass a little of that to our guest. We'll see how much he's in for that. We'll see. Although he might not be joining us for the second half. He might not be joining us for the review. So I think that might end up actually being on me. Um, But, uh, you know, uh, as a final um, note before the new year, tough year 2020. Um, Things are looking a little brighter for 2021 with vaccines and things like that coming along. Hopefully that means a little something positive for the movie industry. Um, But, you know, again, just wanted to give a very special thank you to the Retro Network for giving us our home this year and and allowing us to... uh, go through these uh, 14 or 15 or so uh, episodes and um, hopefully you out in listener land have enjoyed it. Um, if you're interested, uh, we're looking for guests in the new year. So if you'd like to join us and you've been enjoying the show, uh, let us know, reach out on social media. We'd be happy to have you to discuss uh, maybe some of your favorite movies in the nineties. Um, yeah. And uh, past that um, again, just thank you for listening. We had a great first year and uh We'll be kicking off a, a full year, a full year in 20, or 2021 with 1991. <laughs> and also you can check us out on our special segment in the Retro Network's holiday special, which just yes. dropped about a week or so ago. And there's little segments from all of the different podcasts on the Retro Network. We're in there. You can check us out and listen to some funny clips about well, what did we talk about? Holiday movies or yes, yeah the 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 top ten um, holiday movies of the nineties because unfortunately like our horror one there wasn't ten ho- uh, holiday movies specific to nineteen ninety so we'll have to figure out something different next year. <laughs> Maybe you guys could tell us, you know, that'd be fun. That's right. <laughs> and you know, as always, we enjoy you know having this conversation. I found though that doing this podcast with you. I talk to you less over text than we normally do. <laughs> I'm always trying to hold stuff back to have conversations about here. <laughs> Just right, this is better than text. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, listen, as always, again, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Have a happy holiday. Have a happy new year. Stay healthy. Stay safe. And, you know, we'll see you in the movies. See you next year, friends. of the Retro Network.